Hello, everybody. Welcome to a Comic Boom Comic Source collaboration. It's time for our weekly DC Spotlight. This time we're covering the third week of February, February 20th, 2024. Really good week, I felt like. Uh, I, I think I enjoyed just about every book, um, some more than others, obviously, uh, as always. But yeah, I thought it was a really good week. Uh, what were your thoughts, Rocky? I, I enjoyed it too. I thought it was uh, it was pretty good. I, I was a little late in the game. Finally read Nightwing, but uh, no, I, I I actually enjoyed it. I thought it was a pretty enjoyable week for actually pretty much most all of them. There was one was a little bit of a stinker. I thought, but we'll we'll get into it. And I'm I'm curious to hear your thoughts on Catwoman in particular. So, uh, yeah, that Catwoman probably the weakest of the of the week without question. Uh, but yeah, overall really strong week and. Uh, I hope everybody, everybody got a chance, speaking of DC Books, to listen to my interview with uh, with Natalie Maines. If that name sounds familiar to you, she played Dreamer in the, the Supergirl CW show. And now she actually writes, uh, has been writing some uh, Dreamer stories for DC Comics. And uh, yeah, we had a fantastic conversation. It's available on the Comic Source YouTube channel as well as the, uh, the Comic Source audio feed. So I hope you guys all check that out. Uh, let's go ahead and dive into the books for this week. Uh, Batman Superman World's Finest, its latest arc, comes to a close with issue 24. It's written by Mark Wade. Dan Mora is the artist. Tamara Bonvillain on colors. Steve Wands on letters. Um, so one of the little things about this story that I've been kind of nitpicking on was the fact that it's dealing with uh, Magog. You know, if, if you're familiar with the Kingdom Come storyline, you, know, you know, Evergreen story, it's always in print from DC, written by Mark Wade, uh, with art by Alex Ross. It's a very famous story about dystopian kind of future, sort of very, uh, very bleak, with Magog as this very violent, almost fascist superhero. And Superman, he's always been, you know, the symbol for doing things the right way as a superhero is, is, is kind of removed himself from the equation, what have you. So we, when you read this story, uh, this is where a lot of the roots of that world are being planted, I guess you'd say, by by Mark Wade. We see Magog's, or we've seen Magog's origin from, from when he was a kid, basically, in uh, not necessarily in this arc, because we had one previously, Thunderboy uh, arc. And now we're seeing him, at, you know, as a, uh, a more mature man and uh, the choices he makes. And yeah, you know, the whole argument of nature versus nurture, if he had stayed on, on earth prime and, and been influenced by our Superman, would, would he have had a better time? Like, what is it about the Superman of this earth that he just doesn't quite have that kind of moral resiliency? doesn't kind of, uh, he kind of takes things to heart. He lets himself get down and depressed. He doesn't, quite have that spark of, of hopefulness and eventually that leads to, to kingdom come. So uh, yeah, I, it ends, this is the way the story ends makes perfect sense. And, you know, I had, I had wondered, I had said on this podcast, like, yeah, how interesting can this be? Because we know where these characters have to end up in order for them to be where they need to be for kingdom come to then take place. Um, and again, it, it all makes sense. But I feel like the story lacks some impact because it feels a little bit – if you haven't read Kingdom Come, this feels a little bit incomplete, right? Like, But at the same time, not, not that Mark Wade's out there going, well, let me get – let me see if I can increase my Kingdom Come royalties 
you know, by putting out this story and then people who are going to, who haven't read Kingdom Come are going to want to go and read it. Um, I think it's just, you know, he wanted to revisit. He wanted to, he probably had, you know, the ideas in his head of who Magog was and how he became who he, who he was. And um, so, yeah, overall it's, it's a good story, but there's no surprises, I guess, you know, there, there can't be some big impactful moment or, or big plot twist because, at the end of the day, the people have to be who they are in order to, as I said, put them in place to to be able to tell that Kingdom Come story. So, yeah, for me, this was just okay. Um, probably not my even my favorite issue of the arc. Uh, and this arc has definitely not been my favorite of, of the series because overall the series has been really strong. But again, I think it's just an inherent weakness when you go back and you tell a story um, – not that Mark Waid doesn't get to introduce some new things, uh, but ultimately David Magog has to act like who he is and puts him in the place to, to you know, eventually become the Magog that we see in the, the uh, Kingdom Come story. So uh, I also thought that Dan Mora art wasn't quite as strong as I've seen in the past. The, the backgrounds on some of the pages seemed really, really light. Um, also, the, it was kind of colored sort of dark. Uh, and I get that it's sort of a bleak story, but it's been a bleak story throughout, throughout this arc anyway. And uh, I didn't think the previous couple issues were colored that that dark. Uh, I don't know if it's just because dark side shows up. You got to give us some, uh, you know, a lot of browns and dark blues and grays and what have you. Uh, yeah, it didn't. The coloring didn't work for me uh, either. Um, so yeah, for me, a, a bit of a down issue. Um, it didn't, it didn't really resonate. It's not going to be, uh, memorable. Although I will say in terms of art, the, um, the double page spread that we get when the specter specter is talking about, uh, what I was just saying about how all, you know, all these events had to happen the way they happened in order to, for kingdom come to, you know, eventually take place the way that we know it does. Uh, that double page spread by Dan Moore is, is fantastic. If you're watching us on, YouTube, Rocky's got it up on the screen now. It, 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 that's some. That's an amazing piece of art. Uh, again, I wish the colors were a little brighter, a little more primary. You know, it would feel a little more super heroic. But I mean, overall, this is an enjoyable arc. I'm I'm glad that Mark Wade did it. He probably really enjoyed going and you know sowing some seeds for what eventually leads to the Kingdom Come story. Uh, but for me, I, you know, I know it's kind of uh, sacrilege to say as a DC fan, but I I don't. I don't see what the big deal is about Kingdom Come. It, it's it's a, a, a you know a good enough story. I'm not the biggest Alan uh, Alex Ross guy. Um, I think all his superheroes look like old people um, when he draws them. So maybe that's part of why it, it's only okay for me. Uh, but I, you know I don't subscribe to. Oh my god, it's so good. You know I feel the same way about Watchmen. I remember having a big debate with uh, Trevor from Dark Knight Nation about about Watchmen and how it's only okay. Um, I know that's sacrilege in, in some parts, but yeah, for me, it's like, eh, these are not stories that I go back and read like once a year. There are books that I do, like Irredeemable, I think it's fantastic, speaking of Mark Wade uh, and dystopian Superman stories. That one I'll go back and read, but I don't go back and re read, uh, you know, Watchmen or, or uh, Kingdom Come on a regular basis. In fact, it's probably been over a decade since I've read Kingdom Come. Maybe I need to go back and revisit it. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, anyway, I, I know you've been enjoying this story arc a lot more than me, Rocky. What did you think of how it all turned out? I I really liked the way they sent it. I, uh, 
I can tell by your review that uh, I did very much enjoy it uh, much more than you did. I, I actually find that as a, uh, uh, I actually have another criticism of uh, Joshua Moore, uh, Joshua Williamson's uh, Dark Crisis because uh, I feel Dark Side was more scary here than he was at any point through Dark Crisis. In fact, this was Dark Side was more intimidating here than all the Dark Army was in Dark Crisis. Uh, uh, Dark Side is absolutely terrifying here, and he makes mince meat of both Superman, and he's powerful here. His Omega beams are as powerful as they buddy well should be. Mark Wade understands that Darkseid is a multiversal force to be reckoned with. And I just think that the power of Darkseid, as he sort of arrogantly comes into the universe, and he can sense that the anti-life equation is within Gog, uh, and he, he's drawn to it, and and the scene, and, and a number of things, and the scene where uh, Magog uh, uh, is told by, by Batman and Superman, go get help. And he gets help and he comes back, but he panics and his his way to defeat uh, Darkseid, to prevent Darkseid from getting the anti-life equation is to kill Gog so that the anti-life equation apparently dies with Gog so that Darkseid can't get it. And Darkseid's arrogance, once he realizes that the anti-life equation is once again lost because Gog has been killed, uh, he just arrogantly ignores all of them like they're mosquitoes, like they're totally unimportant. And he goes, he, and he just ignores them and it really pisses off Magog. But he doesn't care. And that's Darkseid. And that's what I love. I just, I, I think that Mark Wade absolutely nailed Darkseid here. I thought it was, I thought it was awesome. I, I just love that. And, um, and I have to say, um, you know, I couldn't help but think, you know, you talk about the, the we talk about the, the use of lethal force in comic books. You know, if this was the uh, if this was the the MCU Avengers, I mean, did they did they did they have any ink, uh, reservations about decapitating uh, Thanos when, when Thor did that in Endgame? Of course not. You, you killed Thanos. Who cares? And here, all these heroes. I thought it was a little bit exaggerated. Everybody was so upset that Gog was killed. I thought, really, well, alert, I, man. I, I haven't seen I haven't seen Endgame. He gets decapitated. Oh man, but for me. yeah, but I mean, it was, it, it's interesting. I mean, I, I get it. Of course I understand uh, Superman and Batman have their moral code and lethal uh, against killing and all that jazz. I just thought it was kind of, uh, uh, it just made me, made me realize that, uh, why, one of the reasons why I like kingdom come, uh, and, and this is a perfect, this is a perfect segue into kingdom come after you've read this story, because people reading this might wonder why Superman and Batman are getting so upset with Magog for, I mean, what he did was, and it, it, we, you, you can't convict him for it. I mean, cause it was, it was 50, 50, whether they, they'd be able to defeat dark side. I mean, they said, Oh, we, we had options. You, you shouldn't have just right away killed, killed Gog. Well, I don't know about that. And, and then of course we know that much later in the future, Magog's going to make that choice to kill the Joker after he does what he does to the people in the Daily Planet, setting off the events of Kingdom Come. So I thought it was very well done. And I also like the ending where Superman and Batman, the Spectre takes Superman and Batman. They travel into the future a little bit. And 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 Superman has a sort of a, a conversation with with an, uh, later on with David, you know, telling him that there, it's never too late to seek redemption and to be, become a better person. So I thought it was very well done. I, so, and, and I, I, I don't know if you exactly said this, but I would, I, I think that this is accessible. I don't think you need to really know the events of kingdom come. I think enough of it is hinted at, even if you don't read kingdom come, uh, 
you'll you'll definitely want to read. I would think if I if I did not read Kingdom Come and I just read this story arc, I would want to read the events of Kingdom Come after reading this. I think this would whet the appetite of a new reader. But uh, maybe you disagree with me on that. No, I, I I agree. I think if you haven't read Kingdom Come, you read this. It's a natural thing to go because that's the thing. I'm glad you mentioned Superman going and talking to David post Kingdom Come, right? So Wade, not only did he get to write a prequel to Kingdom Come, he got to write a little epilogue as well, which I'm sure he's wanted to do. Um, and yeah, you also bring up the moral aspect of of killing and like, don't get me wrong, Magog is a villain in my mind, uh, especially in the pages of Kingdom Come. But I, you know. You do take a second to, to to think about it, right? Like, okay, if you don't stop Darkseid, then everybody on the whole planet dies, right? And, you know, there is such a thing as, you know, justifiable homicide. And he kills Magog, or, or he kills Gog, rather, who is a bad guy. And, you know, he protects millions, if not billions of people. So it does feel a little bit disingenuous. And again, you know, I agree with you. Obviously, we know Superman has this moral code. Batman has this moral code. Um, but it's interesting because we just had Titan's Beast War, right? Where, um, you know, Gar be- became a Starro. And he was able to defeat the Necrostar. But, you know, as a consequence of that, people got uh, infected by the spores. And, you know, people died that way too. And, you know, we see it. And I think it's in Titan's this week where uh, there's a couple of people that are on there debating and they're like, Oh, what beast boy did was wrong. And he's a bad guy and whatever. It's like the planet would not have survived. So I get it. I get it that thousands of people may have died as an indirect consequence of the choice that Gar made. But uh, you know, that's better than everyone on the whole planet dying from the necro necro star. So the heroes are on, that side and, and, you know, are kind of saying, yeah, it sucks that people died, but, you know, we had to look at the bigger picture, but then in a book that's out the very same week, some of these same heroes, they're, you know, questioning David for killing Gog and saying, well, you know, you should have found a different way. Well, maybe there wasn't another way, you know, uh, especially they act like, oh, there was all this time to sit and plan. Like everything was happening in the heat of the moment. Uh, and you're right, dark side completely formidable. So you, choice had to be made. Uh, again, I'm not saying he's right. I'm not saying he's wrong. I'm just saying I understand why he made the choice that he made. Uh, okay, up next actually is that Titans issue that I was just talking about. I, I think that has a debate in it. It's written by, by Tom Taylor. Uh, Steven Segovia is the artist. Um, we have Annette Kwok on colors, Wes Abbott on letters. The Dark... Uh, Winged Queen Part One. It's called. Uh, obviously, we know that the the evil side of Raven is uh, is in charge. Um, I will say I miss having Nicholas Scott on the art. <clears throat> Scovia does an okay job. I just don't think his art is quite as refined as Nicholas. Um, but we do have that debate that I mentioned, and th- that debate is between Melinda, uh, Grace, and Lynn, uh, the sister of. Uh, of Dick Grayson of Nightwing, who's the mayor of Bloodhaven and Sergeant Steel. And, uh, you know, I, I, I understand why Tom Taylor wants to put this in there. And it is very meta and it is very relevant. And the whole story he's telling with Amanda Waller does feel, um, for lack of a better term, ripped from the headlines in terms of you know, the political state of the world. And not just here in the United States, but very much uh, also in Australia where, um, where Tom King is from, the conservative movement um, 
I mean, I don't want to get too political here, but it's very hypocritical, right? Like they condemn people for doing the same things that they do. Uh, but then when you call them out on it, they, you know, it's always an excuse or what have you. Um, it, it's just, it doesn't stand up to any kind of logic or critical thinking. And so the arguments that Sarge still makes here, it's what I was just saying. Like he, he's condemning Beast Boy and the Titans for doing what they were doing. Um, when the fact of the matter is if they hadn't done what they did, if, if Gar hadn't turned into uh, a Starro, everybody's gone. The whole earth is gone, right? You start to steal. You're not around to, uh, to bitch about what was done. Um, and you're complaining that the Titans made all these unilateral decisions, but yet after in the aftermath, when people were infected, you guys made a unilateral decision. You were going to wipe out all the people that were infected with the sport. You're going to kill hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. And then when the Titans make a unilateral decision to disable your ability to do that because they had a better way that saved lives, then you're condemning him for that. Like it, it, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. It, it just doesn't. It's not. It, you can't just have your way. You're not a king. You're not a ruler. You're not a dictator. That's just not the way that it works. It, if it's okay for you to do, then it's okay for someone else to do. And if it's not okay for them to do, then it's not okay for you to do. Um, but where I have a problem with it is just, man, I get enough of this in real life, especially here right now with the presidential election this year in the United States. I don't really need to see this in my comic. Like I, I really don't. Uh, I really don't. So I feel for you guys. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, 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 you know, later the, the part where it was really just like disgusted me later, there's a, there's a flood and the Titans go to try to save people. And I mean, this is a, a you know, a, a natural disaster and it's bad. And, you know, two story houses there, people are in the attic because the water is so high. They're two story house and guard goes into a house when he hears people scream uh, to, to save these two kids and uh, their father. And the father hits guard with a baseball bat. And he's, and he's like, get out of here. What are you doing in my house? Leave my kids alone. I saw it on the news, whatever. It just, the, the uh, part of why it pisses me off so much is because it's all too realistic, right? You do have people that are so fucking ignorant that they can't think for themselves and they'll just watch some bullshit on TV. Well, the news said this, it's on TV. It must be true. And they don't take half a second to critically think. A lot of them don't have the ability to critically think. They can't apply logic to any situation. They just believe what anybody says. Uh, and they spout all these Christian values and all this other bullshit. Um, like you, government can't tell us what to do, but they're turning around telling everybody what to fucking do. Oh, it's got to be the way we want it. You just said you don't want big government. You don't want people telling you what to do. So do everything the way you want us to do. Like, that's the same fucking thing. It's the same thing. It's so frustrating. And again, I just, I don't need it in my comic. I, I just don't. I, I, I read comics to get away from all that crap. So for me, this was, although it's entertaining and, and you know, interesting and, and, and technically good comic. And I do enjoy the aspect of what's going on with Raven and uh, Trigon even asked her at the end, well, why aren't you just taking the Titans out? Like what's taking you so long? And she's like, I don't, I don't want to take the Titans out. I want them to, to be my servants. I want to control them. Th yes, that's cool. That's, that is what a, a malevolent presence would do. I, killing you is the easy way out. I'd rather have you serve me. That's, that's even worse, you know, to live your life in servitude for me and what have you. So that stuff's all interesting, but 
like the the political aspect of it, like Beast Wars over. Can we just move on? And I, I just I don't want it in my my books. Like I'm not saying I don't want politics in comics at all, but um, you know I t- I talked about we talked about this a long like three or four years ago when we started seeing all these villain groups show up that were fascist um, because it it seems like the the idea the ideal uh, of fascism is on the the rise worldwide and I don't know humanity and society is so stupid we can't learn from our past. We saw fascism rise, you know, late 1930s and 40s in Germany and Italy, and we saw how well that did. We saw how well that did. Like almost 500,000 Americans lost their lives in World War II, and here we are. There's a good segment of this country that will reelect somebody who says and does things that uh, really remind me of uh, a certain somebody back from back in the day, like in a scary way. Um, so, yeah. I, I could do without that. If I want to read about that, there's plenty. I can go read All Star Squadron if I want to read about that, because uh, that wasn't done in a more enjoyable way. Um, which kind of reminds me of you know, we we're just talking about killing in comics and what have you, and Kingdom Come and and all that. Comics of they always are going to reflect society, and there's always going to be politics involved. Uh, and the fact of the matter is that. If we were telling the same kind of stories in comics that we were in the Golden Age or the Silver Age or even the Bronze Age, I, don't, I think even less people would read them. We we sort of have evolved as a as a society to to want more complex stories, which is a good thing. But you know, by because of that, there are some byproducts that aren't always enjoyable for everybody. But at the end of the day, I can just put this down and not read it if I don't like it. And there's plenty of other books to pick up and read. So uh, it definitely makes you think we'll see where it goes. I'm ready to leave beast war behind though. Uh, and it's politics uh, as well. So uh, I don't know, Rocky, what'd you think of this? Well, it's funny. I never, uh, it's, there, there is a small amount of politics in here. I, it, it didn't bother me as much as it did you. Uh, although I can certainly understand, uh, you know, uh, it, it's funny it, just as a, as a quick aside. And then I'll, I'll just say this about the politics in our world is that, uh, I do believe that the, the re- overabundance and the toxicity of politics in our world has lowered our tolerance and threshold for politics and comics, to be honest. I think, I think yeah. we're more, sensitive to politics and comics now than we have been in the past let's say as little early as five or ten years ago and that's just because we're we're all sick of it we all we all just want to get along and move on with our lives but yeah god damn like you said it's kind of hard to having said all that let's talk about amanda waller and the sovereign um amanda waller i it's it's interesting in this interview that took place with serge Steele and melinda grayson lynn the mayor of blundhaven what's what i find interesting about the uh about the debate they have is uh, Mayor Grayson Lynn were, were, talks about Amanda Waller and her Bureau of Sovereignty. Now, I don't, I, I didn't, uh, I, I guess this, uh, maybe I'm nitpicking, but I'm, I'm a little bit confused because I, I didn't think Amanda Waller was actually in charge of the Bureau of Sovereignty. I, I, I still say that the Bureau of Sovereignty is there's that old Mr. Magoo character in Tom King's run that I thought was maybe in charge of the sovereignty, but now Amanda Waller is in charge of the sovereignty. It's, it's interesting that this Bureau of Sovereignty has existed for so long, but it's the first time we're hearing about it. And well, 
I'm, I'm not really sure exactly where they're where they're going where they're going with that. But the Bureau of Sovereignty, I don't know if it's going to stay with us even past Tom King's run or not. But I, I do find that aspect a little bit uh, interesting because I see the Bureau of Sovereignty as being extremely misogynistic, and uh, and I would surprise that uh, I'm sure that Amanda Waller. Uh, there's no way that they would let a man, Amanda Waller, who's obviously a woman, at least I believe she identifies as a woman, <laughs> would, would be allowed to run it. But uh, And particularly being a, a woman of color as well. And I, I say that not to bring politics into it, but because we know the sovereign is genuinely that misogynistic or that organization is. Um, uh, in any event... The uh, we, we saw the T-Jet for the first time here. There's a new T-Jet, which is kind of cool. If you're in, you know, if you're, you know, if you're into all the all those toys, you know, Batman has his toys. So can the Titans. Uh, I like um, I it, it's it's I, I thought it was at first I, I sort of shook my head. I thought we finally get we finally get the ball rolling out of Beast World because Beast World was kind of a, I, I was excited about Beast World. It was actually more exciting than the Titans run was before that, because the Titans before that, they were rescuing trees in Borneo and, and being environmentalists. And here, what are they doing? Well, rather than doing something exciting, they're just fighting natural disasters again in this issue. And but I, I, I get the point of it was was to reinforce the fact that Gar, Gar is he's feared. The world still fear they fear the Titans, uh, and and I think it's earned. For longtime readers like you or I, even though we might not be huge fans of let's say the politics of it or just the Amanda Waller of things, I, I think that it has been organically built up over the last couple of years that Amanda Waller has become more and more of a threat. And it has been organically built that this world, for many different reasons, are slowly starting to fear the heroes more and more. And so I think it works here. And um, even though, frankly, I did find it boring. And I have to say that, and this, it's not that it's a bad storyline. It's not. It's just that I, I just do find it boring. I, I find it boring. And with Raven's soul self, uh, which I guess doesn't even have a name. I guess it's the Raven and Rachel now. There's the Raven Rachel uh, dichotomy. Um, you know, now she wants them. She wants to befriend and have her own. Try to she, she, try to get the Titans on her side, on the dark side of things. I, I just find that boring. To, to what end? For Trigon again? I just I really think that Tom Taylor just ran out of ideas. <laughs> I really think he's ran out of ideas uh, because I just I don't. I, there's nothing to look forward to in this. I just don't care what's what's going to happen to this. It was Raven was so much more interesting when when it was Doctor Hate. It was so much more cool looking, so much more interesting. Now that it's Raven, it's just I think the the uh, the cool aspect fun of it is just sort of taken. It's just it's lost some uh, some gravitas for me. But uh, so I'm very meh about this and very meh about. Um, uh, well, frankly, the general direction of Nightwing as well. But, you know, it still looks like things are going to be closing out. Story arcs are going to be closing around August of this year, leading into whatever the next big event or the, this reboot of what DC is going to be doing in the future. So all in all, this this was kind of a meh issue for me. Yeah. You know, we always complain, like, every time it's a Raven story, it's Trigon. Uh, I don't know. We give people a pass. Okay. I'm a, as a writer, I'm getting my one chance to write a Batman story. I'm going to do Batman Joker. And maybe it's the, kind of the same thing with, with, yeah. I don't think he's running ideas. It's just, it's just, you know, he's going to tell a Raven story. It, Trigon goes hand in hand. Like I, I, I'm just playing devil's advocate here. Cause I totally agree with you. Um, I hear you. Yeah. Raven would be more interesting if it was something other than Trigon again. 
but it is what it is. As far as the Bureau of Sovereignty, it was 100% Amanda Waller in the pages of Beast War. She goes to the president, says it's time. He, whatever, si- signs his executive order and the Bureau is is created and, and imbued with with power. And yeah, she's in charge. I, You know, it, it, it's easy to get and, and say, well, it must be related to the sovereign. And yeah, that's where you're going to get into the misogyny, whatever. How can it not be related? The guy's name is the sovereign. It's all about politics and behind the scenes or whatever. But nothing overtly has been said yet in the DCU that yeah, they're related. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it, th- that aspect is kind of interesting, right? Like, yeah, why would why if the sovereign is such a misogynist, why would he want Amanda? But at the same time, we see in the you know pages of Wonder Woman, we'll talk about in a little while. Uh, sovereign's not above using a female to achieve his ends. Um, so yeah, but as far as I know, yeah, the sovereign is a hundred percent, uh, or the Bureau of Sovereignty is a hundred percent Amanda Waller's in charge. So I don't know. We'll see how that all plays out. Uh, up next Catwoman number 52, uh, Catwoman nine lives part four. Tinny Howard handles the story. Carmen A. D. John Domenico on the art, Veronica Gandini on colors and Lucas Catoni on letters. Give us your thoughts on this one. Well, uh, this was uh, you know this this is a story that you know it's odd it it actually fits in well I suppose with the concept it, with with the concept of nine lives because if you have nine lives to kill uh, the, the whole premise of this nine lives storyline that Teeny Howard started is that after is after Selena acquired nine lives from that meteor meteorite at the end of uh, Gotham War she's she's going on these dangerous missions that she normally wouldn't go on and she's sort of she's got a checkbox for certain things that she wants to get done and apparently what's happened is sometime in the past long time ago at the early part of uh catwoman's career when she was still i guess wearing the, the purple suit or the purple or the gray suit i'm not sure I, I guess it's purple but sometime in the past she was caught by amanda waller and amanda waller basically let her escape with her life on the grounds that someday I'm going to call upon your skills, Selena, and you're going to come work for me. And Selena, this has been bugging her. So she figures, well, now that she's got nine lives, why not go work for Amanda Waller? You know, and of course that's what she does. And Amanda Waller puts her on the suicide squad on a mission to rob Black Adam to rob something from Kandak <laughs> from a, from a palace, from the palace where Black Adam lives. And, um, and uh, and well, obviously it's very life threatening, and she's the, got the bomb in her head, the whole nine yards, because Selena's now a member of the Suicide Squad, and well, that's pretty dangerous. But obviously, we the readers know that well, Selena Selena is probably wise to do this, you know. I mean, because you don't want to owe who the hell wants to owe Amanda Waller a debt. So if you if you have nine lives, you might as well go use that life up, life up. That way, if, if there is some some explosives planted in your head and Amanda Wander, Wander, Amanda Waller kills you, you can you know you still have a life to uh, to live. And and as as the story turns out, that's kind of ultimately what happens. Uh, although I, I do want to give T. Howard some credit here. Uh, the, the suicide team that uh, that Catwoman uh, ends up being on her her suicide co-members are Ravager, Sportsmaster, Jeanette, Black Alice, and Clock King. I particularly like Jeanette and Black Alice because it reminds me of Secret Six, and they were characters in the Secret Six. I thought Teeny Howard did a really good job nailing the character of 
uh, Jeanette, who uh, she basically is like a banshee. She's got banshee-like powers and she's like immortal. She's a very, she's very sexually provocative and she's like, she's lived a long time and she's very, outs- very, uh, she's very uh, sexually outspoken. And, and you got elements of that in this storyline. And, and Black Alice, we haven't seen last time, Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think Black, last time we saw Black Alice was in the pages of Planet with Lazarus Planet, where she basically she helps save the day in Lazarus Planet. She shows up here, and I, I thought this worked kind of well. I thought it was kind of funny that you know Black Adam they, they what they're robbing from Black Adam is the beard of Neshet, and this is this beard of Neshet is supposed to be a wedding gift that Black Adam finds when Black Adam finds a woman who uh, is worthy of him, he's gonna he's gonna gift this to his future bride, but of course it's stolen. It's never made clear exactly why Amanda Waller wants this stuff to be stolen, and Black Alice shows Black Alice steals powers from Black Adam one at a time, but Black Adam as Teth Adam keeps calling the powers back, so Black Adam. Black Alice has the power. She's got the magical ability to steal powers from various heroes at any time around the globe. Uh, and, and <laughs> it all, this ultimately reads like a really, this is a fun one shot to me. I, I enjoyed reading this for what it was worth. And, you know, I honestly, from a continuity point of view, Ravager shouldn't be on the team. The Suicide Squad, I don't even think should technically exist in its current form because Ravager is on Stormwatch right now. But, you know, and uh, I, I don't I don't even know if Black, Black Alice I thought was off the playing field. I'm uh, but again, I, I'm really nitpicking here. I, I'm not sure why Amanda Waller, of all things, would be concerned about these things when she's got other things on the go right now. She's worrying about trinkets and in, in, in contact. But in any event, um, it's interesting that out of the blue, uh, Selena, she sees a she sees a um, a sculpture of the of the god of the cat goddess uh, Bastet, or uh, yeah Bastet, and oddly enough, Bastet tells her admits that yes, I gave you your nine lives, but I've got five cats here five cats here that want to give you some of their powers and the cats have names uh called uh subek hot An- anki zeus uh, zozer atten and mao which happen to form the name of shazam so yes people catwoman ends up with shazam powers from 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 a series from five different felines I'm not making this up there's an absurdity to this but catwoman ends up with Shazam powers that she can access whenever she needs to call upon her cat. So she not only has the nine lives to use up, she now has Shazam-like powers, which she uses at the end because Amanda Waller wants to punish her at the end by blowing her head off. That doesn't work because she's because she uses up one of her lives and then she disappears because she's got Shazam powers. So maybe I miss maybe I've read this wrong, but Catwoman at the end of this ends up with. Shazam powers. She's uh, from the uh, Egyptian cat goddess Bastet. Bastet's five feline pet cats. I at least that's how I saw it. In any event, I don't know what to make of this issue. I had a lot of fun with it. It's wonky as hell, but it's kind of entertaining. I did laugh. Black Adam was a little off in his characterization, but you know, I'll let that go. Uh, she at least got the gods right. She respected, there's an editorial note referencing Christopher Priest's uh, Black Adam run, which is good. But 
this ending was really wonky. I, I don't know. Catwoman having the powers of Shazam with I thought that was really out of left field. And I, I, I don't know. I think that's I think that's nuts. But how do you feel about that? Uh, so when did you realize that she had the powers of, uh, well, first of all, we don't know if it's the powers of Shazam. We'll talk about that in a second, but did you catch it right away or was it when she used the Shazam word in Amanda Waller's office? Uh, it's, it's actually a good question. I, I actually realized that when she used it and then I had to go back and reread it a second time. And then I saw the names of the cats. So I never caught it in the first yeah. read. I caught it on the second. Yeah. So I was going through and yeah, at that moment where, uh, Catwoman gets a chance to meet this this cat goddess uh, or whatever you want to call her, and she talks about how yeah, I mean you know my cats are are always watching you, you know they're you know uh, watching over you or what have you, and she she names them off, and I'm like okay, well that's interesting. She she names them off, and then uh, she says yeah, they they look out for you when you walk the earth. In, in the next panel, she says that, and at that po- moment. She's like, oh, you desperate need. Remember to say their name, say the magic word and they'll come. And I was like, when she said that magic word, that's when I, I kind of scrolled back up and I read the names of the cats and they're, in, you know, in order uh, to spell out Shazam. And I was like, really Shazam? Uh, okay. But, <laughs> you know, kind of similar to what they did with Mary Marvel, right? Like now she gets her powers from um, the, the, you know, the gods of the Amazons rather than yep. um, the same gods that are giving and they're not even all gods uh because you know wisdom of solomon who wasn't a god uh but but you know different entities than billy batson and so catwoman is getting power uh from different entities than either one of those so does she really have the like those powers uh because obviously mary marvel and and billy batson have sort of the same powers and you know she does say shazam and then you know flies up um so what powers does she actually have you know we haven't we haven't actually seen. I also agree with you that, yeah, if you have multiple lives and Amanda Waller, you know, you owe a debt to her, it makes perfect sense to say, okay, you know, working for Amanda Waller is a dangerous proposition. She's going to put a bomb, little, you know, bomb in your head or whatever. Let me go and take care of that and erase that debt. Um, but at the same time, it also felt very trivial, right? Like she survives the heist, which, you know, things don't go the way that, you might think they'd go Catwoman's supposed to be a master thief and things are very chaotic, but she doesn't exactly have an A-list crew. Um, and you know, it, it, Amanda Waller probably in on the planning, probably not a great planner for, for heist either. Uh, but for her to survive it all and then just be in the office and Amanda just, you know, pull out her little clicker and go, okay, you're dead. Oh wait, I don't know what you're on. I don't know why you're still alive. I, you should be dead. <laughs> well, we, uh, it just seemed like how you, you did the hard part. You survived facing off against black Adam, you didn't die. Uh, and you succeeded in, you know, stealing the artifact that you were supposed to steal. And Amanda Waller's excuse was, yeah, but I told you not to, you know, be seen. And you were seen click. She didn't kill anybody else on the team. Uh, it, it just felt a little cheap. Uh, that felt like that life was, was used cheaply. I, I, I have to interject. The one thing that I'm very disappointed, uh, why, how come not one of the variant covers has a Shazam looking kicks? Catwoman. That would be such a cool variant cover. That should have been a variant cover. You know, put a put a lightning bolt on a Catwoman costume and make her all sexy and stuff. I, that's that's the you know I gotta I gotta make that complaint. <laughs> yeah, I mean it would have sold like gangbusters if you had like Art Germ or Derek Chu or somebody doing it. Uh, yeah, hundred percent agree. Absolutely. Uh, in, in, so yeah, a great idea is fun issue as you said. 
Um, you know, a few little story nitpicks here or there. But more of my issue with it is I didn't think the art from Dijon Domenico was particularly strong. It felt very chaotic. But the story also felt very chaotic. Like in terms of pacing, it was very choppy, uh, which is something that I don't I don't know how often I, I couldn't put, you know, put a number on it. I'd have to go back and count. But it does feel like a lot of times when I'm talking about Tinney Howard's books, I'm saying, yeah, the narrative felt choppy. It didn't flow. Um, and, and that's the case here. I mean, we are jumping back to the past and then in, in the present and it, it's not made, you know, overtly clear. You kind of got to get it from the you know context of the story. So yeah, there, there's definitely issues with transitions in this Catwoman run. And I think that's what's turning a lot of people off to the run, but uh, it, yeah, it wasn't a bad comic. I'd say it's probably average, but this week, average is kind of the worst of the bunch, I think. Uh, I think for me, this was probably the worst comic of the week. Again, it was enjoyable. I did enjoy it, and there's some cool ideas here, but just like technically is where uh, I had some issues with it. Uh, all right. Up next, we have Green Lantern War Journal number six from writer Philip Kennedy Johnson. Art by Montos, colors by Adriana Lucas, letters by Dave Sharp. This continues to be such a fun ride, and it feels very epic, which we've come to expect from K Philip Kennedy Johnson. He's even at one point tying this back to his War World saga uh, when we get uh, finally the answer of who's really the the power behind the throne of the Queen Reverend, uh, Revenant, if you will. Uh, like, you know, who is it that infected her? We know she was an, an astronaut or what have you. Uh, and we find out that it was Olgren of the first world. And there's a little editor's note, you know, go back and, and look at uh, Superman, the war world saga. But it seems like even though that's the case, that John is able to kind of overcome the, the losses that they're suffering. Uh, Lantern Shepard gets what seems to be mortally wounded uh, and kind of a light goes on in John's uh, head. And uh, again, Philip, building on things that have come before pulling in some stuff from the uh, Jeffrey Thorne run of John Stewart and talking about John as a builder and, and, you know, someone who's very powerful. He realizes, uh, you know, these revenant lanterns for lack of a better term are, are like, it's almost like you become infected and you become that light, the revenant light, the, the light of Orgrin. Um And so John's like, well, why can't we do that? Why, you know, if we're losing, why can't we basically, uh, us Green Lantern, basically, instead of having bodies, be made of light, be made of the willpower of the Lantern themselves? That's a, just such a cool idea. That's what John does. That's how he's able to heal uh, Shepard. And it looks like maybe that's going to turn the tide, um, but eh, maybe not, because who knows? Maybe Olgren is uh, more powerful than that. But it's it's still a really cool idea especially when you're talking about something like green lantern rings and it's only uh, limited by the imagination of the ring bearer or really the person who's writing the, the story. Uh, and these lanterns have been around so long and, you know, for whatever reason they've introduced different lanterns supposed to tell different stories over the years, you know, starting with, I think the first, the first one that was introduced outside of Hal Jordan was, you know, Guy Gardner. Then we had John Stewart and then, you know, Kyle Rayner and Simon Baz and Jessica Cruz and just so many of them. It's like, how can you, how can you continue to tell fresh stories? We got to come up with really cool ideas. And this is a really cool idea, having the, the lanterns made of light, if you will. Uh, and so we'll see how it all plays out. Supreme confidence in um, Philip Kenny Johnson to, to give us a great payoff for this. In terms of the art, 
Montos is a hundred percent the right person to draw this book. Um, he's great at the cosmic stuff. He's great at the fights, but he's also great at the smaller emotional moments. And when it comes to drawing the villains, the antagonists, the revenants, um, there's a there's a greediness to his art that really works. That helps sell them as something that's kind of horrific, right? Not just bad guys, but there's a horror aspect to it uh, that really works. So I also thought the color work was really strong. Um, and maybe part of that is sort of uh, inherent in the choices that they made. You know, obviously it, you're going to have plenty of bright green for Green Lantern, um, but Adriana Lucas, who I think is one of the best colorists working, um, again, maybe it helps him out that they chose purple for the Revenant color because those colors contrast against each other so well. Uh, it really helps the action pop off the page. So yeah, this might be the strongest issue of the series so far. I thought it was really, really great. What do you think, Rocky? I, I really like, I like the world. I feel like, uh, uh, PKJ is uh, Philip Kennedy Johnson's world building here. I really like the reference to war to war world. I I'm still trying to wrap my head around. I, I don't quite get fully what he means. Olgren of the first world. I know that Olgren was that was mentioned in in war worlds and and that was uh, I think that was the power that Superman was trying to basically battle against, preventing that from from becoming manifest and 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 I think Mo Mongol wanted that power or something, wanted to be the, the son of Olgrim or something, if I remember. So I'm a little bit confused. The, the Revenant Queen says that the the, ra the Radiant Dead are not constructs. They are a window through which Olgrim's light and will may pass through. I don't really know what that means. If they're not a construct, okay, well, then they're, they're just a window. A window, but light's passing through. Well, I don't, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, physics was never my strong point. But anyways, it's interesting. But what does that mean? I'm trying to conceptualize how do you battle that? How does, how does, a lan how does the light of a green lantern battle something that isn't really a construct of light, but a construct or more like a soul of a, of a, of a god? Because Olgren was a god. I don't know. It, it's interesting. I'd like a little bit more explanation. Um, Montos's art is fantastic. I particularly love every time my favorite pages are where they or when they show his mother and his and and his and the construct of of his sister. I mean, just it's just absolutely beautiful at the end. I mean, how he he it's it's this is the most lifelike art I've seen in a very long time, and the line work is just so fine and detailed and just absolutely beautiful and. Uh, even the, the action scenes and uh, and the, the the potential death scenes uh, with uh, lanterns being mortally wounded and, and the, the colors like the purple and the greens everything just seems to flow so right and the backgrounds just beautiful everything blends in just beautifully this is an abs um it's not too often that I buy trades I in fact I, I probably only have in like 26 well, in the last 20 some years, how, how many trades have I gotten? Probably very few, only probably maybe 10 or 15. But this is one where I'm tempted to buy the trade because because uh, the, the art is so beautiful. And um, yeah, I'm really curious to know. I, I, I'm really curious to know how this is going to wrap up because as is indicated at the end, this, this battle is far from over. And so I'm really curious to see how this is going to ultimately wrap up. 
Yeah, again, it's Philip Kennedy Johnson just showing what a fantastic world builder he is. So, yeah, uh, love that he's playing with the Green Lantern mythos. Uh, okay, up next we have uh, Justice League versus Godzilla versus Kong, number five. Brian Buccioletto is the writer. Christian Ducey and Tom Derenick are the artists. Louis Guerrero on colors. Richard Starkings and Jimmy Betancourt on letters. Uh, what do you think of this? I, I can't believe how much uh, Brian Buccellaro, uh, the writer, how much story he crammed into this one issue. But this is a lot of fun. I mean, a lot is going on. And damn, you know, I'm just, I'm not an expert on Godzilla or King Kong lore, but lately in the last six months, we've been inundated between the movies and uh, and uh, Monarch Legacy of Monsters. I watched that. So uh, I know I'm, I'm knowing, I'm not, I know more and more than I ever did. And I like how this story is, is it's it's it continues to build upon past, subsequent issues and each issue has substance to it and the plot moves forward in this issue lois lane is talking to mercy graves uh lex luther's right hand woman and saying look we uh, we know you obviously you don't want to betray lex but you know the world's at stake here superman might might die we need your help we need to know what's going on mercy tells him about mon the monarch and how the monarch's been you know keeping control of these titans and godzilla is 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 necessary to keep the natural order of things it's confirmed uh it's confirmed or explicitly stated in this issue that that Godzilla, of course, uh, when there was an overlap between the worlds, when Toy Man utilized the Dreamstone that overlapped the worlds between the, the the Titans world and and I guess Earth Zero, the that overlap created a, a an imbalance in the natural order of things. So, what is Godzilla? Godzilla is the king of monsters that he always writes. Uh, that imbalance and so that's why he attacks superman in an attempt to uh, in, in killing superman in an attempt to sort of uh sort of recreate uh or impose some sort of balance on the on the forces of nature as it were and in the meantime we've got uh we got uh uh, uh wonder woman and green lantern are defending the atlantis the dome surrounding atlantis we got Flash, Aquaman, and Aqualad looking to become, uh, looking for the beacon that's attracting the the Titans in the in the ocean depths. We got a League of Assassins on on Skull Island uh, are trying to uh, protect a monster skull, and they're battling against Green Arrow. <laughs> we got Supergirl, <coughs> who is uh, Supergirl has a sort of a. a very dysfunctional relationship with King Kong. She ultimately ends up, uh, you know, Gorilla Grodd ends up coming with his minions and worshiping King Kong, but he wants to ultimately control Kong. And he, and I guess he's, or he's trying to do that, I think, indirectly through Supergirl. And so he takes control of Supergirl's mind and Supergirl battles Kong. So it's a, it sort of throws a wrench into the whole King Kong holding the blonde, the, the damsel in distress. Well, it's King Kong battling Supergirl now, whose mind is controlled by Grodd. Um, and then we got Lex at the end controlling the the, the Mecha Godzilla, <laughs> and that that's with Rosal Gull showing up at the end. Oh my God! So much is is crammed in here, and you know I'm throwing all this out because it's I I could talk for thirty minutes going into more detail, but the reality here is this this actually feels it this feels like a story. Like I, is 
it, it's you can sit back and and enjoy this read and it doesn't feel rushed this is i think this is about 35 pages just this issue but it feels like a lot is happening uh, you're getting bang for your buck you're getting good substance story there's uh even shazam shows up shazam feels guilty because he feels he killed superman he feels he failed uh so shazam uh in a in a fit of sort of almost depression and, and rage goes and attacks the Legion of Doom and he's ultimately defeated because Batman tells him, no, come back. We got a plan. You can't handle the Legion by yourself. I mean, there's, there's emotion, there's gravitas, there's things at stake, there's betrayals. And I'm not, I, I'm curious as hell to know how this is going to end, but this is a lot of fun. I got to say, this is probably one of, this is easily, this is substantially better planned than any DC big event, including Beast World, I think, in the last three, four years. This is this this plot possesses more verisimilitude than Dark uh, Dark Crisis did, than Beast World did. I, I enjoy this. Um, it, it's just a lot of fun, and it's completely self-contained as it should be. And I got to give full props. This is w- w- one of my favorite issues this week. I just uh, I just had a had a blast reading this. What about yourself? Yeah, I mean, it's the word we keep coming back to when we're talking about this series, right? It's just so much fun. And you're right. It's it's not just, okay, Buccioletto could have – I mean, let's face it, right? He, he could have done just about anything, very simple story, very simple plot, because you just say, okay, it's Justice League versus Godzilla versus Kong, and people are going to show up for that because it's Justice League versus Godzilla versus Kong, right? Uh, there's maybe not a, a lot you need to do other than just say, okay, this is the story I'm going to tell. Um, and this is the way that I'm going to tell it. And it's, and it's going to work. It's going to work because uh, of just the inherent idea of, of these characters and, and, and a fun story, but he's not phoning it in. He's, he's telling an interesting story. There's so many different moving parts and he does an expert job of giving everybody uh, a chance to to have their little time in the sun, right? We get a little bit of Green Arrow and him, you know, having left the island and trying to figure out how the League of Assassins is involved. We get a little bit of Lois and we understand her, um, you know, worry about Superman. Is he going to live? Is he going to die? And she's doing what she can do, you know, leaning into her talents. Well, let me discover where the monsters came from, reaching out to Mercy. Like there's all these little plot threads. There's all these different moving parts. Like, uh, like you said, there's just a lot going on in in the background, while in the foreground we have all of these different um, characters battling monsters, right? Ba- battling um, the Kraken and battling Godzilla and battling giant crab monsters and what have you. So, yeah, the aspect of of what King Kong's going to bring is also super interesting. We'll see how that plays out, obviously, in the next issue. Um, but yeah, uh, when you add all that up with some fantastic detailed Christian Ducey art, uh, along with Tom Derenick, uh, yeah, it's there's nothing not to love when you read these books. It's just – it's one of those situations where sometimes you read a comic and you're like, well, that wasn't really very good. Or you're aware of it while you're reading. Well, this isn't working. That's not working. And it pulls you out of the story. It's very rare to have a comic where everything is working so well. But the fact that it's working so well, you're aware of it while you're reading it. Like I'm reading this and I'm just thinking in the back of my mind while I'm reading it, like, oh, my God, this is so good. This is just so damn good. It's so amazing. Um, so, yeah, I, it's it's no exaggeration to say it's one of the best comics of the week. It's no exaggeration to say I, it is one of the best kind of events. I, I don't know how much it's an event because, you know, typically if you're talking about a DC event these days, you're talking about a situation where uh, – 
typically there's crossovers and, you know, these days it's a bunch of uh, one shots as well that they add in. Um, so uh, regardless, I, I'll just say it's one of the best series that DC has put out in recent years. It's just really, really enjoyable and fun. So highly, highly recommended. That's something I would consider getting the collection of t- to have because I imagine they'll have a nice hardcover for it. So, uh, okay. Up next, uh, another one that you probably enjoyed a lot more than I did. Uh, it's the Joker Year One Part Three from writer Chip Zdarsky, uh, Giuseppe Camincoli, and Andrea Sorrentini are the pencilers. Stefano Nessi and Orntini handle the inks. Alejandro Sanchez and Dave Stewart on colors. Clayton Cowell on letters. Uh, it's Batman One Forty Four. Uh, what are your thoughts? Well, we learned in the uh, this. Uh, we learned in the second chapter of the Joker Year One storyline, and just to be clear, it's it's it consists of it's only three issues long. The the Joker Year One uh, story arc, and we learned last issue that Doctor Cap Capdeal, uh, who also trained Bruce Wayne uh, to master his mind, Doctor Capdeal being one of the smartest and most intelligent men on the planet, he also trained the Joker to be able to control his fear and to access chaos, and and that ultimately led Joker to sort of create different psych- psyches within himself. And one of the things that Doc that uh, one of the things that Zardaski has done, and it's it's to it's a mixed effect. I've, I've listened to other reviews as well as obviously uh, listened to, you know, our own. And we both had sort of mixed feelings about the, the future because Zardaski is, is telling a, a, a past story with Commissioner Gordon that takes place at the time when the Joker, the Joker's formative year and Joker year one. Uh, we're also getting interspaced with a, a present day story. And then a, there's a future story here that sometime in the future, uh, a future Batman is fighting a Joker virus, and and in and it's been kind of curious. Well, what what's why are we folk, why are we getting this future story with the future Batman fighting a Joker virus that is spreading through laughter? And well, then it, it's revealed here. This third issue really just focuses a lot on Commissioner Gordon fighting the uh, cor- the corrupt uh, Gotham Police Department, uh, and. Basically, what it is is it's Commissioner McLeod. Commissioner McLeod was actually the number two, and was a member of the Red Hood gang. So the big revelation here, in terms of the 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 Joker origin, is that the original Red Hood gang, well, the, the head of the Red Hood gang, fell into a vat of chemicals and ultimately became the Joker. Especially after subsequent to that, he was trained by Doctor Capia. And he became the psychotic Joker. All right. Well, the number two of the Red Hood gang was actually Commissioner, was revealed to be Commissioner McLeod. We never knew that. And the third person was this, his Lieutenant Manny, two corrupt, ultimately two corrupt cops working for Gotham, Gotham PD. And that's what ultimately is revealed here. And the future story exists essentially to sort of tell the story of how Batman Batman stumbles upon, uh, well, Batman ultimately defeats the, the Joker virus, mainly because the Joker lets him win, but also because it's revealed that the Joker had a long-term plan to cause suffering and pain for Commissioner McCloud. He, the Joker killed Manny, uh, but did not kill Commissioner McCloud. He let Commissioner McCloud actually spend time in prison for many years, and then when he got out of prison, that's when the Joker enacted his revenge. And... Okay, that's kind of interesting. And and then in the you know and then in the future, well, you got it you have this uh 
you have a situation where the the Joker ultimately uh, lets Batman win. It w- w- lets Batman win in the future, and then and sort of implying that you know the Joker brags to Batman that I could I could I I could at any time over the decades have killed you at any time, and Batman says to him, "Well, I could have done the same to you," you know. But Batman questions that at the end, saying, "Well, you know what? Maybe the Joker does always have one up on me," you know, because uh, at the end it's basically revealed that uh, the laughter was the poison, but the bats were the antidote. So the sounds that the bat make actually is the antidote to the poison, which was the laughter. And, and that's all well and good. And, you know, it ends with the Joker taking revenge on, on, a, on, a, on a gang that, that beat him up when following the, his, when he was recovering, when he fell into that vat of chemicals. And while he was wandering the streets of Gotham and before he met Dr. Cap, yeah, he was beat up by a gang. Well, the joke, it ends with the Joker, you know, locking, locking a door behind him as he traps a, a, these gang of hoodlums that he's going to get revenge on. And, and that's how that, uh, how this sort of Joker year one ends. And uh, it, it actually makes more sense now. The, 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 the use of the, the, you know, the, the future story revealing what happens to doctor, uh, what happens to commissioner McLeod in the future, how the, it, it, Zardaski was doing that to show how the Joker is extremely patient and he will play the long game over decades to get revenge and to cause horrible things to happen to people. He's extremely patient. He's uh, he just like he is with Batman. Uh, he doesn't, he loves Batman, but he can kill him at any time, but he chooses not to. He hates commissioner McLeod, but he's got no problem waiting years to take revenge on him or anyone else. It's that it's Sardaski's way of, of by giving us his future stories by saying, look, this is how patient the Joker is. Captia, uh, somehow the Joker not only mastered his fear and became a master of chaos, but the Joker really knows how to control the chaos and to time it perfectly and to time when the chaos will happen, to time the pain, to time the suffering. And he's, he's a master at it. And, and you're left wondering at the end, maybe the Joker really is superior to Batman, but he's just the embodiment of chaos. And the, the reason why Joker does this isn't so much to piss Batman off, but it's just Joker's nature. He's chaos. And it's not about beating Batman to the Joker. It's about being the embodiment of the very, very chaos and a fear that before he met after Captia, Captia, he wasn't able to control. So I think this, it, it, it unites the story a little bit better. This third issue It's still a little, I guess, wonky. It's still a little bit unclear. I, I think this, these three issues uh, together, I think it still would read better if you had maybe reading that eighth issue of Batman the Night. I, I think Zardaski, this should have been maybe four issues long and uh, because more should have maybe been flushed out with Dr. Capti, I think. But I, I I did at least have a better appreciation of what Zardaski was trying to say, I think. Uh, but, uh, you know, maybe somebody like yourself will correct me on that. But uh, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to say one way or the other. I mean, how much information, new information did we really get here, right? Joker year one, and obviously the term year one when it comes to DC Comics has a lot of cachet. Um, But other than finding out that Dr. Kapka, who trained Bruce, also trained the Joker, you know, what did we really learn that was new? Nah, not that much, right? Um, So, yeah, an interesting story. It certainly works. Um, 
But is it going to be memorable? Nah, I, I have my doubts. You know, it's, it's again, there's just not a lot of stuff that's new. The Joker could have defeated Batman at any time, like once and for all. Okay. Yeah. I, it's, I, I don't know. Has anybody ever said that right out loud before? Uh, if not, it's been hinted at to the point where, you know, we all kind of understood that. And the, the reverse is true as well, you know, and I, I've said that all the time. If Batman really existed, if the Joker really existed, the Joker doesn't have any superpowers. Batman's going to defeat him in like 30 seconds and end of story. We'll never hear or see from the Joker ever again, which I would be perfectly fine with. Um, but when I think about something um, like uh, One Bad Day Riddler, right? Like that was similar in that this it was this idea that the Riddler is really like the smartest guy in the DCU and could have defeated Batman uh, or you know done committed some crime that Batman would have been able to solve at any time and the whole reason he did the riddles and kind of played the game with Batman was just out of sheer in, you know amusement because he didn't want to get bored and then one day he's just tired of it and Batman it's intimated that Batman has to make the decision, hey, you know, going back to a theme we were talking about earlier, in order to really save future lives uh, that Riddler's going to ruin, I got to kill him. Um, and so when, you know, I think about that and how well that was done by Tom King and Mitch Garretts, and I look at this, and no slight against Zerdaski, I think the goals are different. You know, uh, the prompt that editorial gave to all those writers was, hey, take the character and, and write their version of the, you know, the killing joke, like the epitome of that character go, you know, as, as, as far out to the pinnacle as you can, you know, Zardaski doing something different here. It's a continuing story. Um, so the goals are, are different, but you know, if I were, were to compare the two, yeah, this is just going to come up a little bit lacking because again, I, I just don't think there's anything that's that fresh here other than the idea of you've tied the origin of Batman and the origin of the Joker more closely together because they were trained psychologically or emotionally by the same guy. Um, I don't, and, and I don't even find that aspect of it to be particularly interesting, but I will say that, you know, there's um, some aspects of three jokers here. There's aspects of the Joker here early on that ties into the way the Joker looks in the uh, Batman Brave and the Bold story that we recently got from Tom King and Mitch Garretts. So it does seem like DC editorial wise is trying to tie some of these things together. And I, I you know, I'll give them credit for the effort. I don't know that it's really necessary. It, it, when you think about it, it's almost kind of backwards, right? They're two different things, like three jokers. And we've seen kind of three different looks, especially, you know, back when we had the Jeff John series with art by Jason Fabok, you had the one that kind of the tourists and the Hawaiian, um, the Hawaiian shirt. And then you had the, the one that was, uh, you know, more of the, you know, insane clown. And then you had the one that, you know, was in three piece suit and was more of the old school seventies, eighties crime Lord Joker. Um, and then when you talk about, okay, we're going to unify it all together with the look that Tom King and Mitch Garrett's Joker had, where instead of eyes, he just has like these little white dots in, you know, the shadowy eye sockets of his face, uh, the, it is a more terrifying look, to be honest, but aren't those two things sort of diametrically opposed? Like you're trying to get, you know, everybody on the same page and, and get some consistency with Joker. But at the same time, you're talking about three Jokers uh, where they have wildly different looks. Like, I, I don't know what to think. This is the problem when you overuse a character 
and you have so many people writing disparate stories about uh, the character. So again, um, I would love for a new editor or publisher to come into DC and, you know, say, okay, nobody's going to write any Joker stories for five. Could you imagine that? No Joker stories and nobody able to use a Joker for five years. When the first story after that is, uh, comes out, like how much it would sell, like people would lose their minds. Didio did do something similar when new 52 started. He said, no Joker for a year, for a year. And then, when finally they were able to use the Joker, it was the death of the family storyline, Scott Snyder. That was the Joe's Garage Joker where um, – because the last Joker story previous to that was in New 52 Detective Comics number one. Uh, that's the one by Tony Daniel where the last page is the Joker's face is cut off and it's like nailed to a wall. Uh, and then obviously when Capullo and Snyder did the death of the family, and you know, Joker had his face back. Um, but it was like Velcroed on <laughs> or taped on or whatever. It was, yeah, it was really horrifying, but, but that sold so well because the Joker had been gone for a year. Imagine five years. Imagine that. I, I mean, they would never do it first of all, because Joker stories still sell and it makes them money. And that's not to say you couldn't keep printing killing joke and all the other stuff, but just no new Joker stories. Maybe, like go two years, three years. Give me, just give me a break from the Joker. That's really at the end of the day when I'm selfishly wanting a break from the Joker, uh, because we know that's what would happen. They would sell like gangbusters when they came back. And Amanda Waller. And Amanda Waller. <laughs> oh my God. Uh, you know, at least at least DC themselves are coming right out and saying Amanda Waller's a villain now. Um, but yeah, so let let's finish up this story that we have going on right now. And then yeah, can we have her, her and the Joker, just put them in a deep dark hole and leave them alone for a while. Uh, okay, up next we have Nightwing number 111, written by Tom Taylor. Sami Basri is the artist. We have inks by Vicente Fuentes on a few of the pages. Adriana Lucas handles the colors. Wes Abbott on letters. So a little bit of an interesting story, but I have some nitpicks here. It starts off, we see um, it's Gotham City. We see this guy screaming. He's got a big hole in his chest where his heart would be. He falls over. Batman shows up. Uh, he immediately thinks... Oh, heartless, right? Uh, the the villain that we've seen in Bloodhaven in the pages of uh, Nightwing. There's some flashbacks because uh, at the crime scene is also the, uh, a young boy. This was his father who's been murdered here. Um, so obviously Bruce thinks back to when he lost his parents. He thinks back to when Dick Grayson lost his parents. Uh, you know, there's a child and that that uh, phrase is repeated several times over several panels, which is interesting uh, and I think really works to, to great effect by Taylor. And then the other little nugget here that's kind of cool and Rocky noticed it right away when he was reading it as well is at the uh, tent at Halley Circus where Dick Grayson's uh, parents were killed, Heartless is there as a young boy and he comes walking out with his uh, servant. I can't remember what his name is or whatever. Um, Gerald is, is his name and he's so excited he's so excited um, because Alfred's there and he asks the the, the boy and this, his butler he's like I heard the screaming is the circus okay is everybody alright and uh, this little boy who becomes heartless Shelton is his name and you know we've seen his origin previously in a, a Nightwing annual um, he says no they're totally dead uh, you could hear the screaming. You could hear the bodies hit the ground. It was the best thing ever. <laughs> God, just 
the kid is evil, man. He's evil. And again, you, you read that annual and you can understand he's been through all, you know, all kinds of stuff, but he's, yeah, he's just out and out evil. Um, and just to look on Alfred's face and what have you, and they, they go walking off, but it, it was a nice little nod to heartless, uh, considering, you know, we're supposed to think heartless committed this crime. Uh, so Batman reaches out to Nightwing. Obviously he's worried. Heartless has shown up in Gotham. Nightwing's worried as well. Like, uh, so they meet up. Nightwing goes to Gotham City. They meet up. They're comparing notes and what have you. And, and Nightwing's talking about, he's been relatively quiet lately. Not sure what's going on. And so they, they go, decide to go question the boy, uh, showing the difference between Batman and, and Nightwing. Nightwing's the one that goes in. Batman himself knows he's not good at that sort of thing. He can be intimidating and terrifying. Um, and so he goes, he asks the boy, and there's some things that are not adding up. There's some things that are not adding up. Heartless is very talkative. Uh, and again, that's uh, sort of – we're reminded of that when we see him as a little boy, how excited he is. He wants to experience the trauma that he's caused people and what have you. But this guy that went and killed um, this this father didn't say anything and just left the boy and, and kind of ran off. We're also told that the boy's uh, the, the boy's mother had died in a car accident a few years prior. Um, the boy's not going to have to worry about money. His family was wealthy, and his uncle is like his only living relative. That's who's going to take care of him. Like right at that moment, uh, automatically, I already have like a light bulb go off. Like, oh, the uncle, right? Like, like who's killing people? Uh, if it's not heartless and it's a copycat, who's killing people? Like, look for the easiest motive. Who's you know that, that that's what police do in real life. Who stands to gain by this death? So, yeah, Nightwing does say to Batman, everything's not adding up here. They go to the morgue. They examine the body. It's sloppily done, not surgically removed the way Heartless would do it. Um, and they're like, yeah, who you know, who could it be? Uh, we got to make sure the boys didn't care of whatever. Like, these are supposed to be the two greatest detectives in the DCU. And Batman is always suspicious of everything. How do they both not immediately go, oh, we need to look into the uncle. He's immediately the one that stands to gain. And sure enough, he comes to the police station. He gets the kid. He goes home uh, and he tells the kid, pack up your stuff. We got to leave. You, you know, stupidly got a superhero involved and what have you. And I'm like, I, I know criminals are not the smartest anyway, but this guy's a fucking moron. He you, is. Yeah. You, dumb. you copycat heartless. You did you not think Nightwing was going to show up? You fucking idiot. Of course he's going to show up. You're yelling at the kid. You, what you thought? Yeah, you, I I would, I'll just kill. I'll just kill somebody in the manner of heartless. And Nightwing's not going to get involved. You're a moron. You deserve to be caught. You stupid idiot. So I, I don't know if there's just he's supposed to be that stupid. I know Batman and Nightwing are not supposed to be that stupid. So uh, I gotta. I mean, I love Tom Taylor. I, I I am enjoying this story, but those two things for me were just kind of like head scratchers, like. No, the right away they're going to suspect the uncle because I did. Like before we even went to the morgue and saw that the job wasn't done the right way. As soon as uh, I think it was Montoya, Commissioner Montoya said, oh, the, the boy's parents are wealthy. Only his uncle uh, is the only remaining relative. He'll take care of him. As soon as Montoya said that, I was like, oh, is the uncle involved? How can you not? Again, it's just. This is like human nature. This is what happens in these kind of crimes. It's always the person that stands to gain or not always, but frequently it's the person that stands to gain. People are selfish. So uh, I just thought that was a big miss 
especially for the, you know, supposed two of the best detectives in the DC universe. Um, so yeah, uh, as far as the backup goes, uh, it's uh, a hint of uh, the storyline to come fallen grace. I, I didn't really care for the style that it was written in. Um, the art is fine by Frank Avila. It's what you come to expect from Frank Avila. Uh, got a little bit of a horror vibe to it. Colors are done very, very well by Frank Avila. Um, but I, it just, it, I kind of didn't see the point of it. And then I got to the end and I guess I should give the credits. It's written by Michael W. Conrad, obviously Frank Avila uh, doing the art. Like I said, um, Wes Abbott on letters, Frank Avila obviously handles the colors as well. Uh, and it kind of reminded me of the, the Wonder Woman run that, that Conrad had um, where it, like sometimes it's okay as a writer to just come right out and tell us what the fuck is happening instead of beating around the bush and trying to be all mysterious and, and, you know, pull us in. I wasn't pulled in. I was just kind of a little bit annoyed. Uh, and I'm like, okay, at the end, once again, here we go with the Joker, but this is supposed to be like medieval time. So what the hell is the Joker doing there? I'm supposed to be intrigued by that. No, I'm just, I'm just kind of annoyed. Um, we know this, uh, fallen Grayson story is coming. So I'll just be patient. And once it makes it to the main book, I'll, it'll be explained. I'll understand what's going on. In the meantime, I guess I'll just sort of tolerate these backups from Michael W. Conrad because it's not offering me much other than gorgeous art. But the story here, like I, I know, I know nothing other than there's this guy, he's the son of gray, thus gray son. Right. And he's going to fight some guy who kind of looks like the Joker. That That's what we know. We don't, we don't know why his father was killed. We don't know what this group that the Joker's involved. Like, we know nothing. We know nothing. And I, like I said, instead of being intrigued, um, just the way that it's written, I, I, it's just I, I'm left feeling like, okay, this is kind of futile. Uh, I could reread this seven times and I'm not going to get anything out of it because it's just not written very well. So uh, anyway, what do you think, Rocky? Well, I'll start talking about the backup first. Uh, I, I – I, there's something about the, the art of uh, uh, Frank Avila that I just like. I I, I just I, actually I love it. I and I really got I got familiar with Frank Avila when he when he was drawing covers for the Lone Ranger for Dynamite. He was drawing westerns and I just loved them. I just loved those covers and I got I got a whole slew of like really high high grade uh, Lone Ranger covers. I just I, I love his art. And then of course I really fell in love with his art when we reviewed his uh, work with Scott Snyder with Night of the Ghoul, which is just excellent. And the the only thing with his DC work is that I wish he did a lot of, of the backups with Matthew Rosenberg's and the Joker, those Joker backups, which were completely nonsensical, made no sense at all. I think it's a waste of a good artist. You know, I mean, I, I, I just, I, I think Frank Avila would be, uh, I wish they would put him to better use than on these, these backups. Now this story m might have more of a point to it than those Joker backups did that Frank Avila drew, but uh, Michael W. Conrad is, I, you know, I don't, I wasn't a fan of his Wonder Woman with his collaboration with his, uh, with, with, uh, Becky Cloonan, but, uh, it's, it, I guess it's not bad, but you know, what, what's the point? I'm, I'm, so I'm just sort of, I'm like you, I was like, well, I don't know what to make of it, but I, I guess if it has a point, it, but I, I don't get the feeling that it's going to be related to the, to the final Tom Taylor's final arc. Now, with respect to the main story proper, uh, it should be noted that this is issue. This is Nightwing issue one eleven. Uh, Tom Taylor, I think, is is set to leave the title at issue one one twenty. Is it? Well, I think it's one twenty. Is yeah, yeah sounds right. Yeah, this leaving at issue one twenty, and so um, 
there is uh, there's an obvious theme and a tone to to Tom Taylor's Nightwing that he wants to keep, and he, and he's definitely kept it. And it's it's based on the the plots have never been particularly sophisticated, even his heartless arc, even his heartless plotting. And but the his he focuses on character so much. Character arc is his strength, and it's all about how great uh, Dick Grayson is. And if you're a Dick Grayson fan, you should probably love Nightwing. And so I don't see Tom Taylor deviating from that. It's sort of like when he was uh, when he did his like 18 issues of John Kent's Super man there uh, or son of you know son of superman he you know he he, he was very consistent you know he had it was a lot of non-violence he only you know he, he wasn't supposed to use this he only used his fist once and he, he had a very particular vision for for john kent and he stuck to it to uh to his credit i mean as you gotta you gotta be disciplined as, as a writer regardless of what individual readers might think when i look at this uh, nightwing you know there's no question the, the strength of this story you pointed out. I, I, I echo all your sentiments. This this criminal is an idiot. I mean, you're you're copycatting. You're you're, you're, you're going to copycat heartless Nightwing's villain in in Gotham City where the, with the Batman. So then you you got to have a brain in your head. You guys, if you have a brain in your head, you know Batman and Nightwing are going to show up. Uh, and but but you can tell that all this was done to set up the character work, talking focusing on. Dick Grayson as a child, Bruce Wayne as a child, and 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 Heartless as a child to really ram home those similarities. And so, I mean, Tom Taylor is really spelling out the character work here on 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 that storyline. And ultimately, it's going to be leading leading to uh, Dick Grayson learning how to leap again, which sounds a little bit corny. But uh, you had to remind me that it was last issue that Dick Grayson supposedly just suddenly forgot how to leap and he's he's afraid of heights where's that coming from i don't know but uh one of the rumors going around the uh, uh twitter uh and i never thought of this but it makes sense is that what's the big leap that dick grayson's gonna make he's gonna ask babs to marry him yeah that's, that's exactly what i thought of what yeah. what's the leap he's scared to really make like where's this coming from oh he's scared to to ask uh, but you know, again, like with only a few issues left for Taylor, I, I think DC would already have started promoting it, but yeah, you never know, know, but it, it might, wouldn't it be nice if it was a nice, uh, surprise, wouldn't that be a pleasant surprise just as a way to reward the fans, especially right before September, when we go into sort of a, a, a new revitalized DCU, I think that would be awesome. Start that off with, uh, with, uh, with the wedding of, of Dick Grayson and, and Barbara Gordon. I think that would be amazing. But anyways, that's what I'm hoping. But, uh, overall, I, I didn't think the story was that bad, but, uh, um, yeah, but it was it was still kind of mad to me. But you know, Tom Taylor, you know, again, the character work is good. You you got to give him that. Yeah, I mean, I I enjoyed it. You know, as much as I was nitpicking those two points, uh, I did really enjoy it because what it, what I loved was the portrayal of the relationship between Batman and Dick, especially because in the Gotham War recently, one of the what I think is the best relationships in comics, that relationship between Batman and or between Bruce and Dick, was it wasn't portrayed in a good way, right? Like they were at each other's throats, so to speak. Um, so I, I really appreciated that it worked, um, that it's working here and a reminder that, yeah, they do have the, the, um, the fact that they're orphans, they have that in common, that, that there's a bond there and they really do care about each other. So, uh, all right, 
Up next, we have Superman number 11, written by Joshua Williamson. Art in this issue is by David Baldione. Colors by Rex Locust. Letters by Ariana Mare. Um, Lex Luthor Revenge Squad continue talking about pharma and graft and how they want to have revenge on Lex, even more so than Superman, which we're reminded of in this issue. Uh, we're getting a lot more of Lena Luthor, Lex's daughter, and we're getting some of his mother as well. <laughs> which a little, I mean, I, in my mind, Lex is right around 50 years old, which means his mom's got to be like 70. And in this issue, yeah. she puts on the armor and she's out there battling and she's in full supervillain mode at, at 70. I'm being conservative. We could mm -hmm. even say, okay, maybe Lex is 40. Then she's, you know, early sixties. <laughs> I mean, even then it's a stretch, but uh, all right, Joshua Williamson, you know, we'll, We'll, we'll make it work. I guess she's got the armor to, to kind of help her. But at the end of the day, I think she's still probably pulling a muscle. Uh, but this is a lot of fun. You know, I'm, I'm nitpicking here, but I am enjoying the story that um, that Joshua Williamson is, is telling here. Because it's refreshing to have villains that aren't just out to get Superman, right? Like they have possibly the ability to kill Superman, to poison him with kryptonite, but that's not their end goal, right? They would rather use Superman – and have Superman kill Luther, their true target, because of you know everything that happened in their early days when Lex Luthor first showed up um, in Gotham City. And they know, in a lot of ways, having leaving Superman alive with the knowledge that he killed Lex Luthor would be worse than killing him. So that really works. Uh, I thought the color work was absolutely fantastic. The line work from Baldion. Baldion's art, it's a little more of a cartoony style. We especially get a lot of exaggeration in the faces, um, but not in a uh, an anime way, which I really enjoy. So, yeah, with uh, the purples that and the greens that, that Rex Locust brings in, uh, you know, those being the two primary colors of Lex's armor, I, it just works really well. This is a lot of fun. How it's all going to play out, we'll have to wait and see. But I will say that it's been a long time, maybe since I can remember maybe since the triangle era that I felt like a run in the, the Superman title has felt this coherent, right? Like this is issue number 11 and it feels like every issue from Williamson um, so far has all been adding to this story. Yes. It's the second arc. Uh, and I suppose you could probably pick up issue seven and just read this arc and, and kind of catch up with what was going on before, but everything that's happened previously in this run is, is kind of referenced and is important, you know, and it's even mentioned here. Parasite is mentioned, which was the first classic Superman villain that Williamson used silver Banshee, uh, which I still love the idea of silver Banshee, uh, Siobhan and, and Jimmy Olsen dating, uh, but she's mentioned here. So, uh, it's been the same story and this is the way you do it, right? Like sometimes you're telling one big long story uh, and what immediately comes to mind when it doesn't work is Nick Spencer's run on Amazing Spider-Man from a few years ago. The whole entire 50 issue run was all a story of a villain called the Kindred who, spoiler alert, turned out to be uh, Harry Osborn. But it just dragged on and on and on. And obviously that's a big difference. 50 issues versus we're only 11 issues in here, uh, just about a year. Um so I, this is working. This is really working for me, the consistency of it, the fact that it all matters, and the fact that we're building up to a big Brainiac event later in the year, which I think 
Brainiac's one of the most underrated Superman villains. Um, I, you know, I think back to the the Burn era. Well, I guess it was after the Burn era. Maybe we'll call it the Roger Stern era. Um, but the post-crisis Superman where we actually had a, a human Brainiac for a little while, which the story is kind of convoluted about how the alien Brainiac infected the mind of a coma, a guy that was in a coma and what have you. So we won't get into it. But um, it, it's Brainiac is a villain that's not used enough in my mind. We have villains that are overused like crazy. Like, I mean, I got to admit, Lex Luthor uh, is probably used too much, just like the Joker. Um, but Brainiac is not one of those. Uh, so uh, I'm going to be interested to see, especially because we know Lena Luthor, Lex's daughter, has a history with Brainiac as well. So how that's all going to play out uh, remains to be seen. But this is fantastic. Love what was done here. And can't wait to see what happens next. What did you think? I, I enjoyed this. You, you know, you mentioned you mentioned how Williamson has has managed to make this feel more cohesive uh, than well, he's made it feel very cohesive. What stands out to me is that Williamson was able to do that because he was not been able to do that for some of his other work, like in Dark Crisis. Like he's he's not. I don't find him during his Flash run, Dark Crisis. I didn't find him particularly good at keeping the plot lines together. Although I did find his Robin one good. So he's he's hit and miss with me with that. But Williamson, I got to give him full props here. I've I've been enjoying this Superman run, and uh, I agree with you. Everything does seem to flow. It makes sense. Uh, last issue, I would have liked to have seen more of the Wild West, but none of it was inconsistent. It was maybe a little rushed. I would have liked to have spent more time in the West, but that's not really a criticism. If I want to spend more time in an issue, that's a, that's an underhanded compliment. So Williamson's done a good job here, and the art's been pretty damn good. And I don't even mind him. him he's he's playing a little bit he's playing around with kryptonite mythology a little bit uh, i'm pretty sure it's new but uh anyone listening please feel free to correct me i do believe it's he's introduced something new the idea that kryptonite can counter the effect of uh, red kryptonite poisoning uh that's that's interesting I, uh, I I like how Kryptonite drives Superman so mad. One of the it, one of the small little things in the issue that I don't that that I noticed that stood out for me is remember how powerful the chained was when he showed up. So powerful the chained could like almost crush Superman, but yet an angry Superman from Red Kryptonite when he's an angry Superman made he took the chained out in literally seconds so yeah. it really goes to show you just how much superman holds back when he's calm and even when he's pissed even when he's annoyed he's still not even like a tenth of how powerful he is but when he's full bore angry pissed off like under red kryptonite boy the chain looked like terrified I, I thought that was just just great and um and then and even the, the concern about uh lena luther uh I like how Williamson, we're getting a, I'm get, I wanted to get a sense of her character out because I'm wondering is, is Lena a future villain? Is she going to be kind hearted? I, I was curious to see how Williamson was going to develop her character. And it's apparent to me that, uh, that she is, at least for now, he, she does appear to be, have a good heart. And it seems just that despite her parents, <laughs> uh, you know, she does seem to have a kind heart and it is really curious, you know, she, Lena is actually curious about her origins. I think, you know, she at one point she asks like the the Lex Luthor hologram there about, you know, who is, you know, 
she asks who she is and and so and that was a not only was that a convenient way for lena to obviously find out what lexcord knows about her but it's it's a convenient way for new readers and readers like myself who forget the finer details (laughs) i like being spoon-fed some of those or those details because it doesn't matter how long i read comics my memory isn't as large or as competent as my collection is so i appreciated that very much and you know I thought it was well done. And of course, just the, the fact that Lex Luthor had an origin in Metropolis as a potential hero, but maybe he had some villainous background as well with with Graft, I, I thought I, I think is really good. And uh, and the teaser for the next issue of Lex Luthor versus the truth. What is the truth going to be? Uh, we've already got some revelations, you know, with Perry Wright running, running for mayor and Perry Wright, Perry White's past and Lois Lane is the uh, editor. And I just it, this, this has been this has been a lot. Of, of fun and you know kudos to Williamson he's done a good job here and this is definitely a candidate for book of the week for me oh wow yeah yeah it's been a heck of a lot of fun you're right uh, alright up next we have <coughs> excuse me uh, Wonder Woman number six it's Wonder Woman Outlaw finale written by Tom King uh, Daniel Samper is the artist Tamea Mori on colors Clayton Cal on letters give us your thoughts on this one <laughs> Okay, well, uh, I'm just going to, it's a little longer here to pop up. There it is. I, you know, this, this issue is all action. It's, it's, it's just a huge action issue because uh, last issue we had a, an issue where basically it was a recruitment issue where the sovereign got his forces together, uh, and the and Wonder Woman got her forces together of, of the all of Wonder Woman, and uh, at some point we were expecting here to be that there's going to be a battle. And I got to admit, I didn't expect the battle to come so soon, and I didn't expect the battle to not only come so soon, but to all take place in one issue. And it had some pretty cool moments, but I'm 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 a little bit torn. I, I wish I had my mind made up here. First of all, the art is absolutely fantastic, and I, I the the choreography of the action and how Daniel Semper puts it on the page. I think he's. Uh, I think I think this possibly even rivals some of the sequences rivals some of his work on on Dark Crisis. I mean, this is art, art artistically. This is just fantastic. I absolutely love the scene where where. Diana has a Steve Trevor whose mind is basically he's sort of put to sleep by Dr. Cycle, and then all of a sudden Gigantus hand pops out of the ground. Just an absolutely epic scene. And it just, I mean, I know, I know there, there's that word is a little bit cliche when we use it when we review comics, but cinematic comes to mind on some of these scenes. And it's it, it is really cool. And and the arrogance and Daniel Semper cap, captures the arrogance of Cersei, you know, sitting on a park bench with the doves as she's sort of like orchestra the this attack this massive attack from all these villains on onto wonder woman and wonder woman you know uh you know again right away she spins and she's got the stars and so reminiscent of linda carter and and but but drawn with the majesty that only daniel semper can do she makes quick work of uh giganta uh and then and then Sil- Sil- silver swan and uh it, it leads to i mean the 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 narration is still remains it still appears to be like the sovereign uh that old mr magoo looking character sort of narrating the battle it, it is a hell of a battle 
And while Wonder, as the Sovereign sort of sips wine and watches the battle, Wonder Woman is really, you know, it's taken a toll on her, but she manages to, she manages to, to hold her own. And then, and then Grail shows up and I love Grail. And I, I, I want to, I want to give some props to Tom King here on, uh, let me just quickly say that if I got one complaint, I want this to be two or three issues long of a battle sequence. I didn't want this to all just be in one issue. <laughs> so that's that's my one complaint, because this is, I mean, I think we, we could have easily filled up another issue here. I think we've had too much decompression in the earlier issues. I would have had to have two or three issues of action, but that's that's my nitpick. But this battle here with Grail coming up and Grail, who is also Grail of Grail's mother is an Amazon and her father is Dark Side. But you know, she she has a blade on her, a powerful blade that she could use to possibly kill Wonder Woman. But she's got that Amazonian, even Grail has an Amazonian sense of honor that she wants to fight Wonder Woman, you know, hand-to-hand -hand combat. And it's it's just visceral. It's action, and it's you, you can feel the blows. I, I think it's so well done, and it's like I I, I was impressed. I, I I was impressed with the sequence of events and the, and the chore the choreography of it all and the art of it all. And I'll get to the story in a mo in a moment. But the the battle between the two and. Uh, it ends with Wonder Woman just, okay, obviously winning the day and then essentially passing out. And and then one can presume that since she passed out, that's, I mean, Cersei is there. I mean, she never technically battled Cersei, so she's probably going to, you know, she's her body is going to be collected. And I'm assuming now she's the prisoner of the Sovereign next issue. But man, it, it was a hell of a fight. Now, uh, so frankly... Here's here's the possible criticisms of this issue. I say possible. You could say, well, where's the Justice League? This is on Washington steps. I mean, I mean, how could how, where are, where are the rest of the heroes of the DC? Where are the Titans? Where are the Justice League? Where's Superman? Where's Batman? Where are all these other heroes? What the hell happened to them? This was so unrealistic. Well, I'm gonna cut. Uh, I'm gonna cut things some slack on that because you know Batman has all kinds of obscenely ridiculous fights in Gotham City, and 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 the Justice League and Titans are always mysteriously absent, as well as the other members of the Bat family. So I'll I'll cut him some slack here just for no other reason so we get wonder woman strutting her stuff like she does here one of the things about these uh these first six issues of wonder woman so far by tom king is that this very much is a wonder woman centered story tom king doesn't really play well with others in terms of continuity playing with other characters and crossing over with other comics in the dc universe and that's okay when the story is, is good here as as it is here so far in wonder woman I do have criticisms of this story. I'm not going to restate them. People can go back and look at our past reviews. I do think this is too decompressed. I would have. I, I still. I still feel that we, we don't know enough about the sovereign. I still wish Wonder Woman would have done a little bit. Would have found out and discovered a little bit more than she has so far. This six issues in, but we're, we're moving along here. And I, you know, from I have cheated and looked at solicitations. Uh, because we don't have future issues on this sucker. <laughs> if we did, I'm sure I would have read them. But uh, I, I'm really curious to see how this ends. I, I'm, I'm really hopeful that that King nails the landing on this because I, I thought this was beautiful. I would love to own pages of this. Uh, I mean, Daniel Samper, I, I could not. I'm sure I would not be able to afford 
to buy any of the pages of this issue, but man, his battle here against Grail on some of those pages, I would just love to own the page. I, I think it's just amazing. So um, I'm going to, I overall, uh, there are some things I could further comment on and nitpick, but I'm not going to here because I, I just thoroughly enjoyed it. It's so nice to see Wonder Woman kick some ass. And she didn't supplicate herself. She didn't get on her knees. She kicked some ass. She was kicking ass and taking names. And she was she was overwhelmed. And I like the fact that the Wonder Women weren't there. They didn't show up. It was just her. She had to do this on her own. And I, I, I like this. And it shows that the Sovereign planned this, manipulated events. They got one up on Wonder Woman. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's going to be interesting to see now as as a captive how is wonder woman going to escape and that's going to be the real test of tom king is how does wonder woman escape because she's going to be tied up she's going to be you know be be in a position where she could uh she'll have to confront the lasso of lies so look for a come you know how does the lasso of truth combat deal with the lasso of lies how does it affect wonder woman i'm really curious to see where we are moving forward and getting there this capture of wonder woman i think was 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 pretty good i i quite enjoyed this this was a this was a fun issue i'm really curious to hear your thoughts so yeah i mean it was fantastic it was so good uh i i I do find it a little interesting, you know, you're talking about, and you you have said in the past, yeah, I'm moving a little slow, a little too decompressed, but yet you wanted this battle to be more decompressed. And I understand why, right? Like, it's so epic. There's so many fantastic ideas, like right from the start. Uh, I mean, you could start with the fact that uh, the Giganta was buried under the ground, that, like you said, the Sovereign clearly has been putting all this in, in motion. Um, you knowing that Steve Trevor was going to be where he was going to be and Wonder Woman was going to be sitting next to him. And this was going to allow, you know, these events to play out the way that they, that they did. It's just, it's so fun. It's so great. Um, the Sam Pear art you, you mentioned, it's fantastic as well. I mean, there's nothing not to like, if you like comics, uh, there's nothing not to like here. It, it, it's just fantastic. So um, I, I echo also what you said about, uh, wanting to own pages. Yeah. I would love to own pages. Like I think back when we first had Daniel on, um, I can't remember if you joined me for that interview or not. I think you did. I did. Right? It was like, on future state. Uh, yeah. 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 The future state Aquaman yeah. story. We were so impressed with what he did. Uh, it was so much fun. And, um, you know, he told us about getting the offer to do action comics and how he had to, you know, talk to his girlfriend about it and was like, oh, I just don't know. And we were like, what are you crazy, man? And to think, you know, he went from from Future State Aquaman to that uh, that uh, action comics run to, uh, was it uh, Dark Crisis? That's right. Now to Wonder Woman. I mean, just, uh, you know, a fantastic progression, also well-deserved. Because I remember the first time, uh, and Daniel and I have talked about this, first time I saw his work um, in that, that Justice League annual when uh, Scott Snyder was doing uh, Justice League. And it was when the Justice League went out to the source wall and they were trying to, you know, fix the crack in the source wall and what have you. And I just remember being blown away by that art. And that art was fantastic, don't get me wrong. But oh my God, how far has he come? Because... Here's the thing that makes this issue work so well. And if you're watching this on YouTube, Rocky's got a page up right now that sums this up perfectly, right? The reason that this run has been working for me so well and the reason uh, that this particular issue works so well for me, it comes down to tension. It comes down to the tension between 
Wonder Woman and the Sovereign. And Wonder Woman at this point still, she knows there's some shadowy organization or some shadowy person or whatever that's pulling the strings and is, you know, trying to uh, besmirch the Amazon's name. It has besmirched the Amazon's name. It has caused all these problems, but she doesn't know who it is. And it's that tension uh, of her trying to figure it out. While on the other hand, the Sovereign knows exactly who his, you know, foe is. It's Wonder Woman. How do we stop her? King's done a good job of showing us just how powerful uh, Wonder Woman is, whether it's this issue with her literally catching the Washington Monument, the Gigantis trying to smash her with, or the issue where she was taking on the military and throwing tanks around. Regardless of, of what situation she's been put in, she's been up to the task. She's been able to rise to the challenge. So uh, if you go back to that page you had up there before, Rocky, where she's walking and Grail's walking, Again, it's the tension like, oh, it's a shit is about to get real. We are about to have two of the most powerful female combatants in the DC universe throw down, right? Like that, this will rival any UFC battle uh, that I would ever see in real life yeah. with what we're about to see right here, right? It's the tension. It's the tension that's uh, from the story that King is writing and pitting the sovereign against Wonder Woman, but also how Daniel is able to mirror that tension, how he's able to bring that tension to life through his choice of whatever it might be panel layouts uh, in this particular case uh, with them, you know, walking toward each other or uh, tension in individual people's faces, whether it's, um, you know, we can look to, to last issue when it was uh, Diana against Hippolyta when they're facing off in the Coliseum. And then later that's those kind of same events uh, mirrored for Lizzie and Diana, right? Like it's when Diana's the mother, she's worried about Lizzie. Do I really want her to, you know, do I really want to fire this gun? Cause first of all, I risk hurting her if she's not up to the task, but if she does succeed and she gets to go out in the world, there's the worry that I'm constantly going to have that she's going to be in man's world facing off against villains, super villains, whatever she could get hurt. There's tension there between mother daughter. And that's mirrored with Hippolyta's same concerns when it was Diana that was undergoing the tent. So it's constantly the, this kind of yin and yang uh, in this story that I think makes it work so well. Uh, much like Rocky, I could nitpick certain things that, you know, don't necessarily make sense. Uh, maybe chief among them, the fact that much like Court of Owls, oh, this sovereign has been around secretly running the United States since its formation and no hero, including Batman, the world's greatest detective or Superman, who I still, you know, Brian Michael Bendis, great guy, loves comics, whatever. No invisible mafia is going to be able to operate in Metropolis under Superman's nose. It's just not going to happen. Uh, it's just not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. So, yeah, I could nitpick that the Sovereign's been around forever and we haven't heard any inkling of him, no hint at all. Well, no, because Tom King just thought him up in the last couple of years. But yet it's problematic when you you know, retcon a character back into history like that because you would have think that somebody would have got a, a clue of his existence before now. So there are things like that I can nitpick, but at the end of the day, it's successful because of the tension and because of the absolutely amazing art uh, of Daniel Samper. Like, I, I I don't know that there's a world where he doesn't win an Eisner for this work in Wonder Woman. Uh, if, if he doesn't win the Eisner for Best Artist on an Ongoing Series, then something has seriously gone wrong uh, with our uh, with our comic community because, yeah, he's – agreed. He, he's doing the, the, the currently the best work in Superman uh, or in superhero comics right now. Um, 
And I would also argue this is the most super heroic story that Tom King has ever told. You know, a lot of times, um, and certainly in his Batman run, to me, that wasn't really a superhero story. And I think Tom would admit that as well, right? Like more of a love story between Batman and Catwoman, but a very dark story and, you know, about their trauma and why they really can't ever really work. Uh, and then you look at Heroes in Crisis again, uh, an examination of trauma. Um, so, uh, I mean, it's a theme when it comes to Tom and it's kind of a joke and a meme. Yeah, he's just going to write a story of somebody's staring out the window uh, at rain. Um, but, you know, look at his body work. Where has he really told a superhero story? Even his Grayson run, which is kind of his first uh, ongoing series at DC that he co-wrote with T Tim Seeley. That was Grayson. That was Dick Grayson. But as a spy, uh, agent of Spiral, not in his Nightwing costume. So. You wouldn't say that um, that uh, Mr. Miracle was a superhero story. You wouldn't say that his Adam Strange, Strange Adventures run was a superhero story. Human Target wasn't a superhero story. Like This is the most traditional superhero, uh, superhero story he's ever told. And he, I think he's doing a fantastic job. So uh, I know he can be divisive and polarizing at times. People don't always like his work, and and that's fine. Not not every story is for every person, but um, for me, this is fantastic. This is why uh, I love Tom uh, and his work because there's a, there's a real joy and a love of comics that comes through, even though it's a you know a story that's filled with tension and a lot of push and pull. Uh, it's just a thoroughly quality superhero story, and it really celebrates who Wonder Woman is uh, in terms of how powerful and formidable she is. So absolutely fantastic. Yeah. Uh, all right. Speaking of a story that really epitomizes who a character is, as much as uh, it's so interesting, almost exact opposite of what I was just saying, I think Simon Spurrier, uh, Hellblazer, uh, Dead in America, John Constantine, Hellblazer, Dead in America, number two, <clears throat> Uh, as much as I don't care for Cy Spurrier writing Flash, trying to write a superhero story, uh, I just don't think it's working. I don't know that there's anybody that I enjoy more writing John Constantine than Simon Spurrier. Uh, Aaron Campbell is handling the art, Jordi Belair on colors, Aditya Bidikar on letters. Um, from the dialect to the body language to the overall feel of the story, the actions that John takes – Again, I just don't think there's a writer that I've ever read um, who handles John Constantine and who makes him feel the most like what I uh, – how I think John Constantine would act than Simon Spurrier. He just does a fantastic job. And the other thing that I love when Simon uh, Spurrier is writing a, a Constantine story is that feeling that I have of who Constantine is. He brings that to the other characters, the other supporting characters that John constantly is going to because a friend in need is a friend indeed. That sums up Constantine to a T, right? There's so many people that owe him favors because he's done things for them in the past and he's constantly going in and calling in those markers, right? And the people show up and they know they got to you know, return the favor, uh, but they look at Constantine and they say, what a bastard, what a horrible person, what a scumbag. Uh, he does despicable things. And yes, we know at the end of the day, he's his goal is probably a good one, a morally right one. But the way he goes about it and his attitude and 
he just he's just unlikable. He's just un- but he's so unlikable as a reader that I enjoy him. I like him because of his um his propensity to be rough around the edges, right? Like he says things that like in polite society, you'd have to keep to yourself, you know, like things that we think in our head, uh, whether we're at work or wherever. And we're like, man, you really want to say this to that person. You can't say it because it's just not polite. You want to get yourself in trouble or whatever. Constantine gets to say those things. And that's, what's fun about him. Uh, and I just enjoy that. And I enjoy that, uh, that Simon Spurrier brings that, um, view of John to the people around him. Um, and they call him on his bullshit constantly. And it's, uh, it's absolutely fantastic. So, um, don't know exactly what's going on in the story. We know Constantine is dead supposedly, but yet he's up and walking around. Uh, and when he meets other magic users, they can kind of sense it. They're like, you know, why are you walking around in that dead husk? Your body's like rotting. Um, so how that's all going to play out. Don't know. The bigger story here is Constantine has been charged by um, by Morpheus, the Endless, what have you, to go and recover his sand. You know, that's um, kind of a, a cliche in, in um, dream myths, right? Like the the Sandman, you hear about it, you know, the Sandman who, who brings his sand that he dusts it over you and it helps you go to sleep. It helps you dream or what have you. Well, Morpheus' sand is missing. Constantine needs to go and find it. And if he does, then maybe he can be resurrected or he can uh, have, you know, himself healed or, or whatever it might be. So again, that whole idea of quid pro quo. Um, and apparently the sand is somewhere in, in America. So as much as I'm not normally a fan of the magical corner of the DCU, when it's not, when it's more like this and it's more esoteric and dark uh, and, and, really horrific than it is on the superhero side with like Zatanna and Dr. Fate and that sort of thing. I like it more like this, like separate it out. Don't even deal with any of the superheroes or what have you separate it out, make it a little supernatural, make it a little uh, horror based and put Aaron Campbell on art because the art here is so fantastic. Jordi Belair shows her range with coloring this in uh, very dreary tones, but it's never muddy doesn't muddy the art at all. You can see the detail in uh, Campbell's line work. Um, just a fantastic series. Um, I would say two issues in, this might be the most I've ever enjoyed a Hellblazer series. And with the caveat, we're only two issues in, but this might be the most I've ever enjoyed a, a Hellblazer series. Uh, it just feels so separate and on its own. Um, and I don't feel like I really have, need to have read anything else to jump in and, and really enjoy this. So uh, yeah, what do you, you think, Rocky? Are you enjoying this so far? Uh, I am. I had to read this. I had to read this issue three times. And uh, unlike Cy Spurrier's Flash, which is becoming more and more difficult for me to get a hold on, a handle on, although I think I'm up to the task. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I say that tongue in cheek, but I actually I enjoyed reading this uh, the full three times. I actually wanted to because some some you know if I'm reading Speed Force, I don't want to read that twice, but I have to because I have I need to have something to say. Um, but this is one where I, I really like the mythology here. It's very interesting. This this Clarice character that Constantine meets, this Clarice character, her her sort of origin goes back. She was raped by Apollo thousands of years ago. And then, of course, when she's raped by Apollo, but she's even though she's a victim, she's she becomes victimized and she's 
instead of being killed, she, she begs for her life from a, from, from a, from a God and holds, you know, grasps a handful of sand saying, please grant me as many years as there are grains in the sand. And, and, and then over the years she ran out of sand, but she found other ways to keep herself alive through occultist means and magic. And, and, uh, I, this Clarice character, I, I really like her, even though she's kind of ultimately seems to become almost like the, the antagonist or the, the villain at the end of this particular issue, you feel for Clarice. And I almost feel like I, I would think that she, she reminds me a little bit of a, of a female version, an older version of, of, of a cynical John Constantine. Uh, and I thought that was, I, I thought that was really intriguing. Meanwhile, Constantine, his body is rotting. He's literally a living rotting corpse. And he's, he figures the only way to save his life is to contact the green swamp thing, who is, of course, the, the green and, and the embodiment of life. And just the just uh, just the final scene is is uh, is actually my, my favorite page in the entire issue is the actually final page where this he's being attacked by this creature that is essentially going to be eating his rotting flesh and bones. And but the swamp thing because he uh, he he manages through the course of the story to call upon the swamp thing but the swamp thing has to try to find a way back and ultimately finds a way back through this rotting skeleton that's attacking john constantine anyways it's quite good now now that's the story part but i mean really the best the part that i mean the part that tells that story is the dialogue it's the character work that spirier does such a good job on i will admit that spirier is very good at I don't understand a lot of British humor or, or I, I don't understand the words that they use sometimes, I, I admit. So sometimes I struggle with, with that. But that's actually kind of a compliment, an underhanded compliment to uh, Spurrier because this feels like this feels like John Constantine because I always struggle to understand Constantine. And that's part of my frustration with the character. He is kind of an a-hole and he's a smart ass and and everyone who meets Constantine doesn't like him. And it's, it's freaking comical already. And, and it's, it's always funny that even when, if I needed help and you told me that Constantine was the guy that was going to rescue me, I'd be worried because I, I, I would, I would assume that Constantine will find a way to rescue me. Yes. But I might end up cursed. My soul might, might be condemned. I mean, Constantine is constantly, the only reason Constantine has never saved his soul is because he spends all this time trying to save the souls of friends that he's failed to save. I mean, it's just, it's a, it's a mess of a, he's a mess of a character, but it's actually, it's the central charm and, and curse of the character that actually makes for very interesting stories. And uh, to Spurrier's credit here, it works very well. Uh, the impact of this story would not have the impact it does if not for Aaron Campbell's art and, and Jordi Blair's colors. This is haunting. This is horror-filled. This is, I mean, there's something incredible about a rotting John Constantine sitting there being sarcastic and cracking jokes with a cursed woman named Clarice while she's talking about being cursed by Apollo and, and you get these flashbacks and you get these, these gloomy backgrounds and they're in the in catacombs and they're I just, it's just, it, the mood is, it, it really is. It feels, this, this feels like John Constantine and, and I'm not by any means an expert on John Constantine, but this, this is one of those characters where I, I needed to read this a second and a third time to actually get it. And I still admittedly, if you note, because sometimes I delve into the plot more, 
I can't because I actually forget. I would have to read it a fourth time to really get a handle on it. But as a compliment, it's one of those things where when you read a comic, everything is being filled in. Like the information is there. The story is there. It's just that there is so much of it in between the character work and the dialogue that it's there. I know because I remember, I remember, you know, I read it like a third time, like a, a week ago. And it's like, wow, well, okay, now I, so I appreciate good storytelling. And this is something that uh, this is, DC makes their money on Hellblazer in, in trades. And this is absolutely something that I think is going to sell well in a trade. Uh, particularly if it's read in conjunction with the the, the first trade that came out, because uh, uh, it, it's just going to read better. Because uh, so probably as a twelve as a twelve issue trade as opposed to a six issue. But no, I, I I was I was impressed. I was, you know, fun issue, fun issue. Not my pick of the week, not a candidate for pick of the week. But Spirier, I want to give him some love because I'm going to be giving him some criticism when when we review the next Flash. <laughs> yeah, I was going to mention that. It's like, you know, if I'm going to give this guy crap because I, I don't care for his flash run, I got to give him his props when he's killing it on Hellblazer. Uh, it just shows like not every writer is made to, you know, take on every character. And I just think, you know, Spurrier's sensibility is just better suited to characters like John Constantine. And I get that he's trying to bring a little bit of cosmic horror, as DC has called it, to the flash, but I just don't think it's working. But this, this Hellblazer is 100% working. And like I said, I I, I kind of feel like I don't want to read Hellblazer written by anybody else other than Cy Spurrier because he just understands the character so well. Uh, all right. Well, that does it for the books we're going to talk about in detail this week. In fact, I think that's all the singles that DC is releasing. As far as hardcovers that are coming out this week, uh, we have a Dark Knight's Death Metal Omnibus hardcover. Uh, that's the Snyder Capullo uh, event from a few years ago. Also, Night Terrors, uh, Nightmare League hardcover uh, is also out this week. Uh, unfortunately, that Night Terrors event didn't go over real well with retailers. We didn't really enjoy it that well either. Um, so I, I think this Night Terrors, uh, Nightmare League uh, collects a lot of the, uh, the anthology stuff that was done. Uh, also, for uh, collections this week, we have The Kingdom the 25th anniversary uh, edition. That's kind of a more obscure story. Uh, don't hear a lot of people talking about it. Uh, written by Mark Wade. It uh, collects a, a bunch of um, tie-ins that uh, New Year's Evil and Kingdom, Kingdom Son of the Bat, Kingdom Nightstar. They're series that uh, based on Kingdom Come success, um, like one shots and what have you that, uh, Mark Wade and some other uh, writers did later that are set in that same uh, universe. So I guess it's a good time to bring that out since um, we just had the end of the, the Kingdom Come tie-in story in uh, uh, Batman Superman this week. Uh, also, Milestone Compendium uh, Volume Number 3 is out. And then um, there's a, a second Dark Knight's Death Metal Omnibus hardcover uh with a for the direct market that has a different cover, so two different uh, Dark Knight Death Metal Omnibus Omnibuy uh, this week. So, uh, all right, I, for me, Rocky, I don't I don't know that I can pick one book for book of the week. It's uh, it's really tough. I thought it was a fantastic week. I thought Wonder Woman was really great. I thought Green Lantern War General was great. I thought Justice League versus Godzilla versus Kong was great. Um, I really enjoyed Hellblazer. Um, but ultimately I think it's gotta be for me between wonder woman and justice league versus 
Godzilla versus Kong. And I think I've picked Justice League versus Godzilla versus Kong every week that it's come out. Um, so I'm going to switch it up this week. and I'm going to go with Wonder Woman um, as my pick of the week. Um, just the strength of the art, the most super heroic story that Tom King's ever told. Wonder Woman doing wondrous things like catching the Washington Monument when Gigantus trying to smash her with it. Um, yeah, just just fantastic. Just just love everything about this title right now. Uh, how about you? What's your book of the week? Well, I I think Godzilla is fantastic. I really enjoyed Superman, but you know I've got a long history with Wonder Woman. I've uh, I'm probably I, I've said this before. I mean I, I probably I think I reviewed 40, 50 straight issues of Wonder Woman when I was just when I was just reviewing random comics on my own. I was consistent with Wonder Woman, and I've I've vented, I've ranted and raved on about the character more. On, on my channel more than any other character. So I have a love for the character, but I, I, I have this, I've said before, Wonder Woman is yet to have her definitive story. She doesn't have her year one. She doesn't have her all-star story. And I'm not saying it's, it's, I don't think it's Tom King's story, but I, I do recognize a, a great issue when I read it. And this is what I love about this issue. It's my pick of the week for sure. And uh, you and I, I, sometimes I get a sense that you and I like to spread the love of the pick of the weeks, but I don't care. I'm picking Wonder Woman too. Because uh, <laughs> I want to. I, 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 lo I just, I loved it that much. What I love about this issue is, even if you, it, it actually works as a standalone. Because this is the type of issue that if you pick it up, you're going to want to buy the previous five issues. Just say, what the hell happened? What led to this? Because you talked about the tension in it and it's there. And it's just, it drips off the page off that gorgeous Daniel Samper art. And it's just, it's just fantastic. And it's, I will say that the issue is actually better than maybe the story. Well, it is better than the story. The action in the story is better than actually the plot getting there over the previous five issues. Because you and I, we've, we can, we, I've been, we've been critical of the storyline. But as just an adrenaline rush, fun, pick this up and just let you. It's a, it's a visual masterpiece, if for no other reason, with great Great, uh, great choreographed action sequences and like you said the tension is there so definitely pick of the week so yeah yeah well that's gonna do it everybody uh don't forget like i said uh nicole main's interview about her upcoming dreamer work from dc it's out on the uh, comic source youtube channel as well as the audio uh you have any other content coming out rocky you want to tease uh, I'm going to, I, I do have a couple of image titles that are going to be coming out probably to, uh, later today or tomorrow, actually, uh, just some random image titles. Uh, I got bored, so I, I got them. I, I'm working on them right now. So, uh, I'll just keep those under wraps for now. But, uh, I wanted to make a comment on your Nic Nicole Maines uh, interview. I listened to it. Very interesting. I, I, I particularly liked, and, and I'm not, not going to, People go watch the interview, uh, but I appreciated her comments about about uh, Amanda Waller, and it was it was interesting to I, I liked that that she talked about doing some more character work for Amanda Waller and maybe diving a little bit deeper into the character, uh, and uh, because you know I noticed that you kept your Amanda Waller. Uh, comments uh, relatively under close to the vest when you interviewed her, which, <laughs> but I think to her credit, I, I, I'm, I'm glad to see Nicole Means because she's actually one of the few writers that DC had 
that rookie writers that I thought has done a, a, a fairly good job developing Dreamer. And that's the, I'm far more interested in seeing the development of Dreamer and that one shot coming up with Dreamer uh, dealing with Amanda Waller than I am about Amanda Waller. And that's that's a credit to her as, a, as an up and coming writer. So it's, it's and it's a good interview. Yeah, I mean, I didn't think it was probably appropriate for me to rant about how terrible Amanda Waller is when she's using Amanda Waller. I did find it very yeah. <laughs> interesting. I'll give you guys uh, again, go listen to it. But one of the things I did find interesting I was kind of curious. Amanda Waller has such a high profile at DC. I was like, okay, so did DC approach you and say, hey, you want to do a Suicide Squad story with Dreamer? That's sort of what I expected. But in fact, it was the exact opposite. It was Nicole herself who had the idea of putting Dreamer on the Suicide Squad, wanting to take the character and explore a little bit more of uh, some darker stories with her. So again, go check it out. Uh, If you're watching us on uh, the YouTube channel, uh, comic space boom exclamation point is Rocky's channel. Be sure you subscribe, ring the notification bell, leave us some comments below. We always love to interact. Uh, but also be sure you head over to wherever you get your podcast, whatever the platform uh, is or app you use, do a search for the comic source and subscribe so you don't miss out on any of uh, the audio only content. And also don't forget spawn daily continues. Uh, we're reviewing uh, all the spawn of all time, basically. So that's on the Comic Source YouTube channel. Just do a search for the Comic Source and subscribe. So we appreciate the support as always, everybody. And we will talk to you next time. You can find the Comic Source podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening and we'll talk to you next time.